Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, March 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. I, I feel like I just left here. I mean, the Rev and I have been on somewhat of a uh, a a motivated mission of podcasting extraordinaire, right? That's that's fair. Do you think we're getting better at it as we as we uh, we we practice practice? (laughs) We we have practiced. We we've integrated our practice with doing this radio show, right? Correct. So we've done a lot of behind the scenes, kept the radio show as normal as we could. Yet we have lights and cameras going and trying to practice recording this segment, looking at a camera, not looking at a camera, you know, just trying to adapt a little of our style toward podcasting. But then uh, now we are in the mode after the show, we're actually going into podcast production this week. So how do you feel it's been going so far? I'm a little bit, I feel a bit like an anchor man. I feel yeah. a little bit, I'm looking into the cameras a little bit different than radio. I, mean, I, I get real animated. When I speak, and I asked Rev yesterday, do I get too animated? No, I mean, I think that's okay. I mean, I, you talk with your hands, and you move your your, your body, and you, be you. you spit all over the place. I mean, you can't <laughs> see when I'm spitting all over the place. On the radio, obviously, you will be able to do it, ah, unless the saliva is of small droplets. Right. Maybe I wear an N95 mask while I'm doing the um, <laughs> well, that would, I'm doing the show. That would be great. Did you see in, the, um, in New York City, the New York City Police Department is now advising businesses to urge customers to unmask? before they come in into the business um believe it or not human nature will do this from time to time um criminals are using the mask as disguises no Mm. you don't say how much safer do you feel walking around in a community where everybody's got a mask and a backpack i don't feel real safe at all um during those days when everybody wore a mask um and in retrospect it's silly I mean, it really and truly is. We should all be embarrassed, myself included, as to what we allow the government to insist require us to do. Enough of us should have said, no, I'm not doing that. Doesn't make any sense. You don't have any data to suggest that works. We vaccinated pregnant women and children. We shut down churches. We actually had people like drive-in theaters worshiping God in heaven. Weren't allowed to go into a sanctuary and we normalize that. I mean, I'm, I'm, in red, I'm looking back, Lord, what the hell were we thinking? It's hard to say church and that in the same <laughs> in the same sentence. But I mean, what in the world? Where, where's our backbone? Where's our, our 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 compass of reality, so to speak? But um, you know, now we find out that the great lie, the biggest lie. You know, um, Williams likes to say the big lie. You know, the election was stolen and the antics of January six. The biggest lie of all was dismissing the lab leak theory of the origin of COVID. I've got a good example. Here's what I would do if I'm Trump. You ready? And maybe DeSantis or Haley beating to it. We've got about $33 trillion in federal debt. A lot of it's intra-government debt. Some of it is uh, public debt. Some of it is owned by foreign governments. The Chinese government owns about $2 trillion of our federal debt. I mean, that's not $20 trillion, but it's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, $2 trillion is a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, well, let me think here. I don't, I don't think anybody's a trillionaire yet. Maybe Musk <laughs> is with some of the Tesla stock. Well, the market's down, so I'm sure Musk isn't, isn't a trillionaire um, yet. But a couple of trillion bucks. Here's what I'd do. I'd send China a bill for $5 trillion for the damage they did to the American economy. Because I'm convinced now that they knew this was a lab leak. They disguised it as something else. Um, Fauci buys into it. 
um, you know, the CDC and NIH and WH owe buy into it. Um, so I would um, write off the $2 trillion of debt that we owe China, and I would issue them a bill for uh, an additional $2 trillion. In other words, if I'm Trump, one of my campaign promises is we're not going to pay China the $2 trillion we owe them, and they can write it off. I mean, Trump's gone bankrupt before. He's had debt written off. I'm sure he would know more about that than anybody. And we're sending a bill across the way for $2 trillion because we believe you cost about $4 trillion. It's actually $6.3 trillion uh, that, that we printed in fiat currency. But, but I've done some math. You can legitimize. I mean, if you're a fairly liberal-thinking person, you can legitimize a couple of trillion dollars in responding to what we had to adjust to in relation to COVID. But $6.3 trillion, I would say the Chinese are responsible for about $4 trillion of that $6.3 trillion. Send, you know, once again, um, the, the debt we're writing off goes away. We don't owe you that $2 trillion. You got to figure it out. I don't know. If we, do we owe the, um, the, the person at the Nike sweatshop making sneakers? Probably not. I doubt they're a holder of American debt. Um, it's probably the Chinese government. So to the, um, to the People's Republic of China, we're sorry. We're not paying you that $2 trillion. In fact, we think you owe us $2 trillion. Is there some sort of international court that we can hold China accountable? Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I mean, is there, is there, is there some sort of um, ability America would have to hold China responsible? Because it's, it, it looks more and more and more like it was a lab leak. It was probably in some weird way, funded by the American government. I mean, that, that would probably be China's get-out-of-jail-free card. Hey, we did it, but you guys were paying for it. Talk to Fauci. He'll, he'll come. I'll uh, put Fauci under oath. He'll come clean under oath, I guess, under threat of perjury, that a lot of the gain-of-function research we were doing in the Wuhan virology lab were indeed paid by the American taxpayer. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine, if, let, let, let's hypothetically say that's where we end up, that it is a lab leak theory, and it is um, gain-of-function research, and the American government was partially funding some of the gain-of-function um, research. So our taxpayer dollars ended up, you know, creating a problem that the taxpayer dollars, uh, you know, they're not taxpayer dollars yet because we haven't paid it back yet, but the $6.3 trillion created out of uh, some sort of Response Care Act American Rescue Plan is now backstopped by the same American um, taxpayer. When do we say enough? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Hey, big news of the day. And uh, I thought we'd start the story with it, but the busy head syndrome takes over. <laughs> big news of the day. I wondered. Um, Alec Murdoch. And, uh, you know, you got to believe that once the jury had, I mean, here's the way it went down from what I'm gathering. Timeline. The jury begins deliberation. Uh, the closing arguments ended late yesterday afternoon. The jury began deliberation. They had their charges. In other words, the judge clearly explained to them what their responsibilities were. Um, the jury begins deliberating, and at about uh, 7-ish, maybe 7.15-ish, might have been before 7. Yeah, it was before 7 when they said we don't need dinner. Hmm, you don't need dinner. W what does that mean? You're going to knock off early and go back wherever it is the jury's being safe harbored, or you think you're close to a verdict. And the, uh, the rumors were rampant. You know, there's nothing to read into this. There's a lot to read into this. But once the jury said that they didn't need dinner ordered in, a lot of the experts believed that they were fairly close to a verdict. So in a, what, 29-day trial, it took three hours to determine that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son. 
And, I mean, here's what I'll say. And I think I put this on Twitter yesterday on somebody else's um, Twitter feed. I don't know this, but I've always wondered this. In the human ethos, does entitlement meet extreme narcissist, meet sociopath, meet psychopath, equals monster? I mean, it's a tragedy at every level. I mean, there is no good to this. And let, let's say this, guys. I mean, a lot of us profess to be Christians. Buster needs prayer. I mean, if you look at one bystander in all of this, and I'm not saying Buster's perfect, because there, there's some that believe Buster had a hand in the Smith um, tragedy. I, I don't know that. I don't know if he'll ever be accused of that. But, but Buster's world is unlike any of ours. I mean, you know, maybe you've gone through a tragedy similar to this. We've all encountered tragedies in our life. We've all had unfortunate things happen in our life. But I can't imagine being a, a young man. Um, your brother is dead. Your mom is dead. And your father is guilty of killing both your, your mother and, and your only other sibling. So he's uh, talk about on an island. I mean, I know, you know, Alec had brothers and friends and whatnot, and I would imagine they'll love up, uh, they'll love up on Buster the best way um, they know how. But, but I go back to the theory I have. In, in the human, e- I mean, there's a dark, 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 dark place in the human ethos. We would agree to that. I mean, we have serial killers. We have mass murderers. We have just things. I mean, I see them online, brutal beatings that you're like, wow, how could you do that to a fellow human being? So, so there is a very dark, dark place of the human ethos. Is that, is the, is the Murdoch tragedy, the trial, the conviction, the tragedy, the tragic story, the tragic tale, is it entitlement? And by that, I mean, Rev, everybody plays by a set of rules, but my family doesn't. We make the rules. We are the rule books in this part of the world. Um, if something gets prosecuted or not, if someone gets charged or not, if someone is found guilty or not, if there's a lawsuit for money to be made or not, it runs through us first. You better make sure that if there's a buck to be made in the legal system, we get first dibs. If there's a, um, a, a controversial or questionable decision to be made by the judicial system in our, in our solicitor's district, we make that call. Anybody that has that ability would, would be marred by it or, or marked by it or influenced by it. Um, nobody needs to have that sort of entitlement. But there is no reason for anybody to believe that. I don't want to say that the untouchable, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's a pretty close way to, to explain or describe it. And, and, and if somebody has that, that entitlement, whether they've earned it or not, I mean, Michael Jordan's earned a lot, right? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of some other great athletes. I mean, th- there are some people who have earned job, uh, Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady's earned the right to not practice every day of the week, Correct. I mean, if you're a rookie and, 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 and with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Brady doesn't come to practice on Mondays and you're like, who Tom Brady think he is? Well, he's a seven-time Super Bowl champion. He's Tom Brady. That's who he is, and he's earned the right. He's entitled himself to not having to practice on Monday. Um, the Packers used to uh, allow Brett Favre to not practice on Monday and Tuesday. You know why? Because he was Brett Favre. He had earned the right to not be there on Monday and Tuesday. So entitlement meets extreme narcissist extreme narcissist meets sociopath and, and we know uh the, the the thumbnail of a sociopath is what thinking about nobody but themselves 
and then psychopath. I mean, that's the other kind of an extreme element of human behavior, and, and eventually that equals monster. I, I'm not calling Alec Murdoch a monster, but he was found guilty of a very brutal killing of his wife and kid. I mean, let me ask you a question, Reb. Could, could anybody other than a monster kill their spouse and then stand over their spouse and discharge one last round into the back of the skull? I think monster is a pretty good word. Well, that, that's it. I mean, that, that's the only word you can apply. Now, once again, I don't think you go from um, being a regular dude to being a monster. I mean, I think there are things in between there. I think some people have a propensity to fast track themselves to there. Um, you know, is, 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 I mean, they, they've done all these evaluations on serial killers and mass murderers and, the, 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 you know, the family annihilator. I mean, I, I told you, I got some psychological study done by scholars about, you know, the family annihilator and, and, and what their, you know, the, what their makeups are, what their profiles are. But, but once again, I think in Alec Murdoch's case, from what I've gathered, it seems to me that he was unbelievably entitled. He was unbelievably narcissistic. Now, I think we found out during the trial, he's both sociopathic and psychopathic. And if that doesn't equal a monster, then I don't know what does. And to point a gun at the head of your kid and pull the trigger, to, to, to do the same to your spouse, and then stand over the deceased person who you married and shoot another bullet in the back of their heads, wow, wow. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Hey, kid, you're Dave. Y'all ever met a, you ever met a person who was like third or fourth or even fifth generation of powerful rich? You know, you know what I'm saying? Sure. At some point, some point there was a man or woman, but he only man. He, they came over there and started this empire. And he, you know, and then, you, then he had a son. And then you have a grandson. And then another son. They had plenty of time for not to become sociopathic and plenty of time for the devil to get into that family and destroy it. And uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, there wasn't a good person in the family. I mean, it, it looks like that the, the mother was a murderer. He looks that way. He looks like he killed the babe. Buster, the other son, looks like he was a mother, murderer, killed his boyfriend. Then you got Paul. He was a uh, he was a dang old uh, brat, this poor rich brat, that you know, accidentally killed a woman. But the, the same thing, they were all every one every one of them was evil. So no doubt about that. But I was going to tell you an interesting story happened yesterday. A friend of mine that was uh, at the tip of the spear, so to speak, when uh, the war started in Afghanistan, he was working with numerous special forces groups. He was tied in there with them. And he's, when they went into Afghanistan and started really bombing them and going after them, they had, as you probably remember this, they had Bin Laden tied up, and they could have taken him out. They could have killed him right then. But the bureaucrats, and this goes back to what Trey Gowdy was saying, we're too dumb to understand. The bureaucrats like Rumsfeld basically told them that he was, at this point, a major, that y'all are too stupid to understand the whole polit- you know, the politics, the, the foreign policy, all of the different things. And also they literally held them back from finishing their job. They had the whole Taliban basically surrounded and trapped. But our government, thinking they should build politics, geopolitical this, this, that, and the other, 
the whole thing could have been over so fast. And he remembers sitting there wondering what the heck they're doing. Then the next thing you know, one of the special forces group he was with told them that he and the rest of them were going to Iraq. He goes, what the hell are we going to Iraq for? You, you see where I'm going? But it was all these politicians that don't fight wars that would have basically screwed everything up. And, and he said it was not a nation building. And then he started talking about the Ukraine and, and, and Russia. He pretty much said the same thing. I, I said it. I said that. I said their intention is to actually prolong the war. They have no intention that they and they could have avoided the war. I said anybody can see that. It's just like you and I. But it was strange coming from a guy with over 25 years in the military that was sitting there saying the same things we're saying. And all it is, and at the end of the day, every one of our daggone problems come back to politicians, godless politicians. You know, just screwing up everything here. But he did think this, and I talked to another guy that's EOD Army, and he's been in about 15 years. He said, none of them would think there's going to be a World War III because, unless it's just an accident, because there's really nothing to gain by it. You know, they, they, they want to spread this thing out. It's like, World War Three would be the cure to cancer. You know, there won't be nobody left saying you won't have no more cancer. You know, so they don't they don't want to find a cure for cancer. They don't want to find a cure for war. If you think about the cure for war would be World War Three, right? There wouldn't be no more wars after that. Would be nobody left to fight. You see what I'm saying? Sure, I do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. A couple of things Breeze touched on talking about dynasties. Um, I mean, it was a judicial dynasty in the low country. There's no question about it. Once again, I think I argued the point that if, um, if there was money to be made on a lawsuit, that law firm got first dibs. If there was a decision to be made about who is in office relating to the law enforcement or judiciary, that family probably had a seat at the table when it happened. And it's a little bit, I've used this analogy before. I believe that I was pretty decent at business because I saw my dad invest his life in a business. I mean, I knew what it took. I didn't do it. I mean, I didn't lay in the bed at night looking at the ceiling wondering how I was going to pay the bank back. I mean, I was the next, you know, generation. I was the son of the guy who founded a company. Um, I had no idea what it took. In fact, I believed up until I probably got 16 or 17 years old that all you did was open the doors and the phone started ringing. If people wanted to buy truck beds, I mean, I just believed that. I was naive and oblivious to the realities and, 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 and struggles of owning a business. But, but I wondered, and, and as part of my selling the business, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'll let you into some of the, the family secret. I wondered at what point my kids or their kids would lose touch with, with what my dad did, with, with the chance my dad took, how hard it was for him to build and sustain uh, a prosperous business. And, and I've used the analogy um, my brother and I weren't going to run a Corvette into a swimming pool at the Ritz-Carlton because we were in touch with what my dad had done. I mean, we saw how hard it was and how nervous he was at times and how diligent he had to be about, you know, threading the needle year by year and succeeding more than in some years than another. But there's no way my brother and I were going to goof that up. We had too much respect for the work he had done. Why? Because we saw it. I mean, we lived it with him. I mean, we, we benefited. We knew all of a sudden we had nicer clothes and, and both of us had cars and we knew, I mean, we were old enough to understand. What's the old saying? The first generation creates it. The second generation preserves it. And the third generation. And that, that, that was my concern, Rev. I mean, my concern was at some point in time, the, the, the guy fi- founds the business. 
I mean, he busts his duff with every fiber in his body to make sure he succeeds, and he does. And the kids see that, and they invest probably not as as uh, passionately as the father, but but they do okay. They do good enough. The the the, the grandkid probably has some reverence for the founder, the grandfather, so he doesn't want to screw it up. But then the next one, I mean, to me, that's when they lose touch. They know nothing about how the business was founded. They know all they know is life's pretty good. We got a beach house, a farm. You know, I've gone to private school. I've always had a car, a new car. And, and that's the generation that runs the Corvette in the swimming pool of the Ritz-Carlton. And that's, that's when dynasties implode. That's when dynasties end. Now, some dynasties are much larger than others, and some dynasties are much harder to do. I mean, they make so much money and have so much influence and so are so well-to-do that, um, you know, they live on trust funds and whatnot. But, um, but that's kind of an interesting – it was a dynasty. There's no doubt about it. And, um, you know, Breeze is arguing that everybody in the family's a, you know, a, a murderer. I don't know that we've proven that yet. Uh, there's con- some concern about the maid, the homemaker, you know, and, and Maggie's involvement there or not, Maggie's knowledge or not. Um, I mean, I'd be careful to blame anybody but Alec. I mean, I really and truly would. I'm not saying everybody's a victim, but you aren't, nor am I. I mean, you're guilty of some things you're not proud of. I'm guilty of some things I'm not proud of. Alec Murdoch was a monster. He was an entitled man who lived off the benefit of a dynasty. He was an extreme narcissist. That's pretty obvious to me. Alec probably loved his wife and kid, but he loved himself a whole lot more than he loved them. I think he has the the the, the, the profile of a sociopath and, and now even maybe the profile of a, of a psychopath. And if you think entitled, narcissist, extreme narcissism, sociopath, psychopath, if that doesn't equal monster, then, then I just don't know what does. Take a break. We'll be back. In just a minute. Talking about the, um, Breeze was talking about the military and the Third World War, and that may end society or civilization as we know it. I've spent a good bit of the last month trying to read, study, research, better understand neoconservatism. Got in a debate with a member of the state party. Uh, we're talking about getting Drew on. Drew was on with us yesterday. Drew is the, um, Drew McKissick is the SCGOP chairman. He is the um, co-chair of the National Republican Party, um, he will probably more likely than not um, succeed Rona McDaniel as chairman of the party. Uh, but but we were talking about, and I think Breeze laid it out pretty uh, eloquently when, when he said, you know, the voters are here and the, the elected officials, and I'm talking about the Washington insiders, I'm not talking about Lowe Jordan and Rickenbaugh. You know, here's what I think about Lowe Jordan and Rickenbaugh. You ready? I think your conversations with them on Friday morning don't allow them to get so out of touch. I mean, they're not, I mean, I would imagine they're fundraisers. They're dealing with, um, you know, with special interests and money interests. I mean, I get it. Those guys go to Columbia. The insurance companies have lobbyists. The, the pharmaceutical companies have lobbyists. Um, I mean, they're, they're dealing a lot with that. I mean, no question about it, but they sit on every Friday morning and, 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 you know, directly communicate with you, the voter. To their credit. To their credit. And, and Absolutely. To their, to their benefit. I mean, it's also True. to their benefit for them to stay very connected and, and communal and, and, you know, civil with you guys I don't think a lot of elected there. officials do that. Well, I mean, they don't, but they don't have a lot of forums when you think about it. Um, I don't know that many elected officials. In other words, when you go on Meet the Press, let's say Lindsey Graham goes on Meet the Press this Sunday morning, Chuck Todd's not doing anything with Lindsey Graham except what NBC News once done with Lindsey Graham. 
and Lindsey has this preconceived um, you know, speech prepared, answers prepared. I mean, he believes in him. I get it. I mean, he believes what he says, but but he's already, he kind of knows what's coming his way, and he's ready for it. Um, I've tried to understand why I am so, ah, I don't want to say resentful, why I am so bothered by the last, well, I mean, since the Reagan revolution, neoconservatism, I think, has been successful in misleading the American public. Um, having a discussion, uh, we got Drew on yesterday. This would have been, you know, this would have been Tuesday. Well, uh, somebody with the party actually reached out to me and said, Hey, Drew could be available Thursday if you'd like to have him on. Cause I've offered, you know, Hey, we'd love to have Drew on whenever Drew wants to come on to kind of give a, um, a perspective of what the state party thinks. Uh, we get all these emails from people who want to replace Drew McKissick and they want to burn him at the stake and he's a lousy chairman. And, um, you know, I don't know any of that. I'm not a party insider by any stretch of the imagination at times I landed the category of the duopoly has failed all, you know, the Republicans nor Democrats deserve, there's deserve my support, but I find that I have more in common with the Republicans than I do the Democrats. Um, but, but I went back and tried to understand the conviction of neoconservatism. And it really goes back. Remember the, um, the rant I went on a couple of Mondays, excuse me, a couple of mornings ago when I basically argued that we could talk about the, uh, the realignment of college football, we can make it as complicated as you want to. And talking about Clemson and Florida State, the Clemson Board of Trustees are concerned. The Florida State Board of Trustees are concerned as to where they fit as the Big Ten and SEC get more and more and more influence, a larger and larger and larger share of the pie. Clemson's not of the SEC. They're not of the Big Ten. FSU's not of the SEC, not of the Big Ten, but their portfolio looks similar. They would be a very similar school to what is in the SEC and Big Ten. Duke's not, Wake's not, Boston College, Itton, Miami's not. But those two schools are kind of um, I don't want to say they're misfits, but but they are that they are trying to find uh, a landing spot in this new alignment of college football. Um, the Big Ten television contract is going to be a billion dollars. The next SEC contract will be in excess of a billion dollars, and we could make that as complicated as we choose. But I tend to break it down to $3 million. I mean, as I've tried to understand it and read about it from a Clemson perspective, from an FSU perspective, from a Big Ten perspective, from an SEC perspective, from a NBC or ABC or CBS or ESPN perspective, and it's all about subscriber units and television uh, viewers. So it's all about $3 million. The reason that Florida State and Clemson find themselves in a quandary is they're playing at a conference where nobody else gets 3 million viewers. I mean, we, we had somewhat of a tutorial on that. Every game of the SEC, unless a Vandy game every now and then, has 3 million. No games in the ACC except when Clemson and Florida State play, not one another. I mean, if Clemson plays Wake, they have 3 million viewers. If Florida State plays Boston College, they have 3 million viewers. Um, Florida State still has some coattails. I mean, they're still kind of a legacy brand in college athletics. So, if, I mean, it's not as simple as just what's the problem with, um, with college football today? Three million. That's not the only answer, but that's the beginning answer. That's the most important answer. And when I begin to read about neoconservatism, I always end up believing that the, the neoconservatives believe the Second World War had a moral conclusion. It's not as simple as that. It's a lot more complicated than that. And, and, and scholars and, 
and and theorists will agree or disagree or they'll debate and and not debate you know american involvement here american uh, involvement there the intervention of this the intervention of the, the, there's a multitude of facets that you can try to speak on and understand and and read about and discuss with other folks who are interested in these sorts of things but at the end of the day i've concluded that the motivation behind the modern day neoconservatism is that the second world war ended in a moral way, had a moral conclusion, and America was largely responsible for that moral conclusion. Um, the shining city on a hill, um, the end of the Second World War, then you get to, what, 80, when, when the Reagan Revolution um, kind of happened. And Reagan was a neocon, no question about it. I mean, peace through strength, you know, and um, th- th- there was a morality to America's involvement in places around the world. Well, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I do think the Second World War ended morally with Hitler putting a gun to his head and the fall of Nazi Germany. I mean, there was enormous loss of life. Um, Europe was in shambles. You know, we, we get on our high horse about how economically we prospered after the Second World War. We were the only ones left standing. I mean, Europe was in just blown to smithereens. I mean, there was no way for the European economy to be productive uh, the, the way it had been just so torn apart. So, so you know, the stars kind of aligned for America. Now, now we'll say um, it was the American century. Well, it should have been. I mean, in all honesty, it should have been the American century because for 25 or 30 years, they built Europe back. I mean, it, once again, it was torn to smithereens. Um, there, there was no way to generate normalcy in an economy. But, but, but I believe that we have become, uh, we live in a post-Second World War. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the Second World War shaped the world of which I've grown up in. And, and most of my ideas about military involvement or intervention, uh, you know, I guess I bordered on American imperialist at time, uh, American exceptionalism. I, I bought into a lot of these things, but, but the majority of that was a, kind of an indirect reflection on the moral conclusion of the second world war. We were the good guys. We were, we had the white hat on, we were riding the white horse. We saved the day for the rest of the world. But, but, you fast forward to Vietnam and, you know, the, the neoconservatives said something and they got the benefit of the doubt once again, Red, because the second world war had a moral conclusion and America had a big hand in that. And Vietnam didn't go quite as planned. And then we go to another invasion and incursion. I mean, I can't list them all down. I've read and try to better understand them. And I'm not talking about Grenada. I'm not talking about some of these other, you know, um, day in day long. And it's like a day trip almost when we go into some of these places, I'm talking about where we went and stayed and had a profound impact. Um, George H.W. Bush deserves a lot of credit. Our objective was to liberate Kuwait, not overthrow Saddam Hussein. But at some point in time in the second Bush administration, and I guess this is the influence of Rumsfeld and Cheney and some of the other, uh, I mean, they, they would be neoconservatives to the nth degree, or, you know, you could even call them war hawks. I don't want to call them war mongers. I think that's pretty wild to call anybody in a diplomatic role a war monger. Uh, some would. I won't. Uh, but they were unbelievably hawkish, unbelievably neoconservative. And I still think they hung on to this moral, conclu- moral morally concluding the Second World War gives America kind of a free pass on whatever it wants to do and not be held accountable. And I think enough Republicans are going now. Wow, dude. I mean, that one didn't work out like you said. That one didn't work out like you said. My son's got a, a, a hole in the side of his head. My neighbor's son can't walk. Um, there, there are two kids down the street that didn't come home. 
And is the Middle East City safer today than it was when we went there? And and I think when you look at um, the Reagan Revolution and you look back from there, you see the moral concluding of the Second World War. When we look back from Ukraine, what do we see? The muddled Middle East. I don't think people who uh, evaluate whether we should be in Ukraine or not are looking at the moral concluding of the Second World War. I think they're looking back at the Middle East. And I think they're basically saying, uh, I don't want any part of that. I mean, I don't want a redo of that. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Rev made an interesting point. So you mean when we look back from the Reagan Revolution, we look past Vietnam? No, I don't think we looked past Vietnam, but I still think we were enamored with our being a large part of the moral concluding of the Second World War. I mean, when I read about neoconservatism and try to understand it, that's kind of where I landed. Once again, people can disagree. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm certainly not a, um, you know, not, not a historian, but, but it seems to me that's something that is a central thread in all these debates and arguments. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. I think there's a way you can kind of sum this up, and, and I'll, I'll run it down with some yes or no questions, and then you'll kind of you'll, you'll see your point be made. Does Europe hate us? In other words, are they our geopolitical enemies? Do they hate us? No. Does Germany hate us? No. Does Japan hate us? No. Does Vietnam hate us? No. Does Afghanistan hate us? Yes. I would say does yes. Iraq, I mean, I, I would say uh, yes. Yeah. Does Iraq? Does yes. Syria? Yes. Does Lebanon? Yes. Does 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 uh, East Pal- does Palestine? Yes. Whatever whatever they call it. yeah. So you see the difference between the the previous wars and the neocon wars? Sure. Yeah, where we had a clear objective, where we had a moral imperative, where we had a a strategy and a claim that we had to have victory, it worked. Right up even, I will say, even right up to the domino theory, which I think is the tipping point in all of this. The domino theory, I have to say, turned out to be true. Communism has not spread since we were willing to go to war to stop it. Now, we didn't defeat communism, but, you know, and then the next one would be the Cold War. Does Russia hate us? Yeah, uh, well, but, but, but see, see and, and Larry, that's where I get complicated. I mean, that, that's where do, do the Russians, is, is the Russian government a representation of the Russian people? Is the Chinese government a representation of the Chinese people? Well, I mean, they, they, I mean, they're made to be. According to my political theories, they have to be. I don't think that China holds a whole nation captive, not that large. I know that they may not they may not be telling their people the truth, and their people may believe a lie, but I don't think they're governing outside of the will of their people. Well, let me ask you a question. What, what if Vladimir Putin gave Larry a chance to speak to the Russian people for 10 minutes? What would what would be some of the high points? What would be some of the um some of the headlines from that speech Larry gives to the Russian people at the at the given the authority by Vladimir Putin? I have no idea. Revolt, 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 revolt now before your country leads us into a world war. But you could say that to a Russian person about what would happen if Joe Biden let him talk to us, and they'd probably say the same thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. I just don't think there's a clear moral imperative anymore. That's but, but, what I'm saying. But you you would agree, I think you would agree, that fanatical Islam or Islam in general is incompatible with Western values and the Western world. Yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm with you there. And that's where I, that's where I get real confused about Russia. Russia is not a fanatical Islamic country. I mean, it's a communist empire. There is no doubt about it. It is... Um, it is a very, I mean, they, they romance about the former Soviet Union, but but I, I'm just not convinced yet that the Russian people hate the idea of America. Well, I don't know that they do either, but but I do know that, that if you look at Russian wars, they're always willing to throw a lot of bodies at a war before they give up. And I think until a half a million or more Russians are dead, they their will won't change because they, they want to be Strong. They want to be seen on the world stage as a powerful nation. I think the Russian people are very proud people in a, in a good way. Um, and I think that, they, that Putin has fooled them into believing that he can return them to their former glory. And it's going to take a lot of dead soldiers before they decide he can't because they want it so badly. Well explained. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. That's kind of a deep philosophical issue that most of us don't ponder or consider. But, I mean, I do believe that most of the Middle Eastern countries hate the idea of America. I mean, it's in direct conflict, Sharia law, fanatical Islam, the Islamic faith in general. I, I do struggle with the fact or the notion that the Russian people hate the idea of American liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. You know, the interesting point of this debate, and Rev and I were talking a second ago, I know some of these questions are relevant. I don't know the answers. He and I talk a lot about the podcast and the radio show and the, the connection or not, the, 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 the commingling or not, the blurring of the lines or not. I know these are questions. Here's what I'm sure of. You ready? There are more questions that Republicans have about neoconservatism today than at any point in my existence. I mean, I have been on the planet nearly 60 years. I've been somewhat informed for probably half of those 60 years. I have never been as questioning of neoconservatism as I am today. I've never seen as many Republicans question the orthodoxies of neoconservatism Republican voters. as they have today. Republican voters without question. The Democrats have been the hippies and the liberals. I mean, they've always been the one to question, you know, the man. And the man, you know, kind of the war march of the big machine. I mean, the American military complex. I mean, American imperialism. I mean, that, that was the hippies. I mean, that was the crowd at Woodstock. But, but now all of a sudden, they're, they're more sympathetic to the, you know, kind of the status quo, the establishment, the Republicans. And I guess this is Trump and America first saying, is it in our best interest to be as interventionist as we have been? And, and the point I want to make clearly the, the reason I think neoconservatism has been such a, a major part of the Republican agenda is this, this, this belief that the Second World War had a moral conclusion because America became intimately and actively engaged slash involved. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington, good morning. Morning, guys. Uh, Ken, you're getting into some deep water here, but... Uh... It's the water we need to get into, and uh, I, you know it's too big for too big for me to understand it all. But I've, I've in reading and and uh, thinking about things, I, I think back in the maybe the 70s when Dan Rather, the newscaster, 
tried to bring America together because there was a lot of dissent and, you know, we were a divided nation back then too, maybe not quite as deeply, but he, he tried to bring us back together by saying that World War II, America saved the world and it was the greatest generation and let's all get together and agree about that and, you know, and, and let's, let's honor the military and so forth. And so it's, uh, and that was, that appealed to conservatives too because the liberals, the hippies were so anti-military, you know, so, and, but the fact is, of course, uh, and, and I think that to, let me try to get my thoughts into the, the, that, uh, Worship of World War II and the Greatest Generation and so forth was, to some extent, a replacement for uh, the recognition of God. As you know, it, it was sort of a replacement for our our kind of American Christian cultural assumptions, to some extent. Uh, not that we were all that great of Christians back then, but anyway, it was it was sort of a replacement for that. And and there's no replacement for that. And uh, we need to realize that that in the Bible, the Bible didn't hide the sins and errors of of the great heroes of uh, of the of the Israel, you know, the people of Israel. Um, the prophets criticized uh, their government um, to such an extent that you know that some of them were killed and some of them came damn near being killed. You know. <laughs> by the by the status quo folks so we live in deep times and uh and i think we we part of the i mean uh, an essential part of getting back uh, or muddling through this is to recognize that we're not god and that we didn't save the world in world war Two. that um you know that God is the one that saves the world, not us. I guess I'll let it go at that. Thank you, Sam. That's a pretty good way to conclude um, those comments. And, and you know, is is I mean, let's ask ourselves this. I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. Is fanatical Islam incompatible with the American way? Yes. Is Islam incompatible with the American way? See that there, there's kind of I mean fanatical Islam is absolute Sharia law and you know the um uh, the, the the counting certain members of society certain ways. I mean America has a history of that. I mean they, you know and and once again I, I still think we need to refer to this linear graph and we need to understand the debate Larry and I had I think week before last when we and you know there's relative good relative bad. There are no angels. I mean ne- neoconservatism is not angelic. And I'm not being completely dismissive of neoconservatism because I do believe that that America had a large hand in allowing for a moral conclusion to the Second World War. But it doesn't give neoconservatism a free pass, does it, Ref, forever? I mean, let's say the thought or mindset of neoconservatism led to a moral conclusion of the Second World War. Let's agree that some of those scholars who kind of pontificate upon that opinion, let's, let's assume for argument's sake they're right. They know what they're talking about. Um, you know, the, the world looks fundamentally different if America doesn't intervene and, and stop the march of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And, you know, if it weren't for America, the allies would have lost. The world could be fundamentally different. As my grandfather all said, we, we all be speaking German today. Um, 
for argument's sake, let's say neoconservatism was a large driver in that moral conclusion of the Second World War. Does that give neoconservatism a lifetime pass? To me, it doesn't. It absolutely does not. And then I think you get into fundamentals of um, what is the difference? Because Larry made an interesting point. Does Russia hate us? I don't think they do. Some would disagree with me. I think their interests are different. I think they're motivated by things different than I. I think Afghanistan hates us. I think Iraq hates us. I think uh, Iran. I think, but the, the hatred is more through a theocracy, this governing by religious leadership. Fanatical Islam is very prevalent in Middle Eastern government leadership. And I do believe that Sharia law and fanatical Islam is very incompatible with Western ideologies and Western values and Western views. But we have communists living in America. I mean, we have, I mean, there's a communist party in America. What we've got at one of the loudest voices in the Democrat party who calls himself a, a socialist. And I think that's where, you know, China is unknown. I mean, I don't know enough about China. I don't have enough history or understanding of China. And, um, and, and we don't have a track record with China like we do with Russia. By that, I mean talking about the, the superpower struggle. You know, there was a day there were two superpowers in the world, America and Russia. The, I think they fairly understood who we were, what we were about. I think we fairly understood who they were and what they were about. I think we were taught and trained to hate Russia. I think they were taught and trained to hate America. China's different. I mean, there, there's this, there's this, um, this curtain, and behind that curtain exists a nation that we don't know a lot about. I mean, I would imagine our security experts, some of our intelligence officials know more about it than I, but, but I think I have a pretty good grasp of Russia in general. And I'm not convinced the Russian people hate the American people. I'm not sure the American people hate the Russian people. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. The difference in the United States and all these other countries that we're talking about, Russia and China, is we have guns. They, they've taken the guns away from their people, so they don't have a choice but to follow their leaders. But if you'll remember, the war started in, in 1938 or nine. The United States was slow to get into it because it didn't, you know, it didn't pertain to us. That was their war until they bombed us on Pearl Harbor on uh, December 7, 1941. That's why Reagan learned from all that and said, okay, you know, we don't need to be getting involved in all these wars, but we need the strongest military. And that's why we put bases all over the world because we lost so many people in World War II because we were so late getting to the game. So now we made these agreements to where we have things in place in case something breaks out, but that doesn't mean we go tell these people what to do. I mean, they bombed the barracks in Lebanon, and they bombed actually bombed the uh, World Trade Center in, what, 1990, 91, right, right before the, the Gulf War, and we did nothing about that. Not the Russians Whenever. now. You're talking about Islam. Right, I'm talking about yeah. Islam. Yeah, so we got we we didn't really do anything. So they took that cue from Clinton. He wasn't going to do anything. So they they saw weakness, and that's the only reason we need a strong military is because weakness, you know, that, that creates a vacuum, and evil is going to fill that vacuum. So 
Biden keeps saying, you know, I'm going to take your AR-15s and your weapons of mass destruction, whatever. Well, talk to the Taliban. They didn't have F-15s like he says you need. And last time I checked, they ran us out of Afghanistan. So that's why these countries won't come to the United States. We got over 300 million guns. And, you know, that's hard to deal with. Russia, China, they don't have any. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. The the point, let's, let's go through some math. You ready? There are 30 member nations of NATO. 21 of the 30 are members of the European Union. Five of the 30 border Russia. Remember the um, the John Kirby interview earlier this week? Um, do you have that, Rev? It might be a good time to play that again. Um, but because, you know, NATO was for a half a century uh, kind of an anti-Soviet Union, um, westward-leaning organization. I mean, they, they really took Russia to task, former Soviet Union. Um, it was kind of an organization um, a consolidation of Western values, Western views, and the Western world. But but, but if everybody's so threatened by Russia, why is America the overwhelming funder of whatever? In other words, if, um, I mean, Poland shares a border. Let's go, let's go to, the, um, to the John Kirby. This is, a, this is a journalist doing his job. I mean, we played it earlier this week. I want to play it again. Once again, 30 nations belong to NATO. 21 of the 30 are members of the European Union. Five share a border with Russia. They've all contributed about 30 or $40 billion to Ukraine. We have contributed about 130 or $35 billion to Ukraine. What are we motivated by? 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, great show as always, Ken. Uh, they, uh, you're calculating so many trajectories in this world politics. I don't, I don't know how many, uh, how you can tell what the speed or what the result is going to be of of all these things come together. And I think uh, Sam probably had it right. It's in the hands of God. A lot of it, but some things we know for sure. And I think you're absolutely right about uh, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and the military-industrial complex. They uh, uh, they don't want us to win a war, but they do want us to be attached to a war because they want to sell product. And the best way to sell product is have the, the war on a good simmer where you burn up ammunition and uh, – and machines and having to replace them at a steady rate. And their uh, profit line gets a little bit better in that situation. And that's just human nature or the way of the world, whatever you want to call it. That is a rule that's going to be obeyed, uh, just like water wets you and uh, fire burns you. But uh, these guys, all, all, all these guys are thinking about neocons I, I think they're driven a lot by just pure greed. Uh, that, that's all. That may be too simple an analysis of it, but I, I'm afraid that's what it is. It's greed or power or maybe pride in some situations. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll get to our guest here in two seconds. Let me, let me conclude this segment with saying this. Um, I, I, for clarity's sake, because it matters to me, I think you can question neoconservatism 
over the last 30 or 40 years without being a pacifist, without being an isolationist, without being a Putin sympathizer or, or, a, or a, a, a Russian apologist. I'm none of that. I am a patriotic American who believes that America has a role and responsibility in global affairs. I do believe that. But, but I'm deeply alarmed and concerned when I hear elected officials say things like, I stand with Ukraine, whatever it takes. I mean, those are careless and irresponsible as far as I'm concerned. And I think the reason, Rev, people say this, and I'm talking about elected officials of prior generations, I think the reason someone would say, whatever it takes, and lead um, the public to believe this is the most important issue facing America today is this, th- th- this, this retrospect we have about the Second World War and its moral conclusion and American neoconservatism being the large contributor to that moral concluding of the Second World War. Nazi Germany was defeated. America had a large hand in, in, the, in the decimation of the, of the Third Reich. But, but I think we've got to be real careful, Rev, whether we're talking Ukraine or China or Russia or America, the United Kingdom, there are no angels. I mean, it's relative good and relative bad. I think America is relatively good in the grand scheme of things. I think uh, the world has benefited in many, many, many amazing ways because of America. But blind loyalty is something I didn't sign up for. And there's a reason fewer and fewer and fewer conservatives identify as neocons. They've looked back and they've honestly asserted, or excuse me, they've honestly accounted for what they were told and what transpired. And it's different. It's kind of interesting to me. The hippies were the hellraisers, you know, back in the, uh, the kind of the anti-war crowd back in the day. And there's been kind of a, an, an evolution. And now the neocons are having trouble with members of their own party. <laughs> the Republican Party have largely dominated, you know, hawkish thought in, uh, in Washington. When it comes to military, and I'm talking about the military industrial complex, it's, it's, it's a warranted conversation. It's a necessary conversation. And, and I'd love to get Lindsey Graham to come in here for an hour and, and let's, let's discuss and debate. L- Lindsey is a very, very competent understander of the foreign policy of America. He is very accomplished at, at, at opining on what our foreign policy is, needs to be, and, and why. Th- th- there are some disagreements we'll have. And, and I think the more conversations we have about those disagreements, the better path forward America has. It ain't Friday. F-R-I-D-Y. Right. It's Friday. F-R-Y-D-A-Y. Russell Fry, Congressman Russell Fry from the um, from the Surfside Beach area is with us this morning. Russell, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing excellent. It is always good to be uh, Friday in multiple ways. Every day is Friday, but today is Friday squared. There you go. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time, Congressman, to join us every other Friday. We know you join a, a, another local show down to the beach to update your constituents on what's happening in Washington. So let's get straight to the business at hand. I know something that you've been intimately involved in as a member of the South Carolina General Assembly was fentanyl. The Judiciary Committee in Washington held a hearing. Fentanyl was a topic of that hearing. What can you tell us uh, about that hearing, Russell? You know, there is no substitute for on-the-ground field hearings, really. I mean, when you think about it, you can read about the border crisis. You can see the clips on television. But when you're down there and you talk to farmers, ranchers, uh, public health officials and hospitals, when you talk to a a farmer whose daughter was um, out 
working on her 4-H project and they see a high-speed chase in their field uh, between uh, Border Patrol and cartels smuggling people, it really hits you that this is a real problem. And what's amazing to me, Ken, is that this administration finally acknowledges that fentanyl is a problem, but they're not doing anything about it. Uh, We continue to see overdose numbers climb. And again, these aren't, you know, Ken, for your listeners, and I think everyone recognizes this, this isn't just traditional people who are hooked on drugs. Cops get, you know, get brought into this when they search a car. Children get brought into this. You know, it's the largest mortality of children under 14. This is big. And these chemicals, the precursors, are coming from China to the cartels. The cartels are manufacturing this stuff and pumping it into our country at a record rate. And this open border experiment from the Biden administration is a colossal failure in a lot of ways, but this being one of the biggest ones. So, so Congressman, what can the Republicans in the House do? You don't have the majority in the Senate. You can't override a presidential veto. So, so what, what do the Republicans desire to have happen on the southern border regarding fentanyl? Well, a couple of things. I think you've got three prongs to this approach. One, you've got an administration that could, if they wanted to, really enforce the laws that are on the books. I think that's the best way to do it. Uh, if we had the White House, we would be continuing on in the same way that President Trump did, uh, but, but here we are. The second thing that we can actually do is oversight. You see right now a very powerful changing narrative. This isn't about you know, illegal immigration, although that's a part of it, but you look at the national security components of this, you look at the drugs that are poisoning our communities, the, the narrative and the polling shows this, it is, it is continuing to swing away from the Democrats in favor toward the Republican plan on this. Uh, so the oversight stuff is really important, highlighting, one, where we are, how we got here, and how do we fix it. The second phase, and I think this is where we're going to start jumping into next, is are there legislative initiatives that we can pass that make sense? Uh, some of them will never be supported by Democrats, unfortunately. Um, I think in, in the South Carolina House, uh, you know, people recognize, you know, reality, but in D.C., Democrats don't seem to. Um, but look, just this week, President, there was a, a bill that we passed that said, you know, that the D.C. crime or the D.C., uh, the criminal statutes that they rewrote uh, to lessen crime or to, to lessen sentencing, you know, all of a sudden it passed. And Biden is not going to veto it. I mean, so I do think there are opportunities just because we have the House and we don't have anything else doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Let's put this administration on record. Let's put congressional Democrats on record for the first time when we talk about poisoning communities with fentanyl. Uh, let's let them get on record that border security doesn't matter. I mean, in my first hearing, Ken, the ranking member Nadler said that we were imagining a border crisis. Well, I'm sorry. We're, you know, th- that's the most obscene statement of all time. And then when we go down to the border, they don't show up to, to work. They don't actually show up to their job to see firsthand the impacts of Biden's border crisis. So I think there's a lot that we can do and that we're doing right now to highlight the issue and then to legislate like we're supposed to. Congressman, I would imagine you have come to understand. I mean, you knew this going in. You weren't naive or oblivious to it, but Washington is different. I mean, it's a different place. It operates different than the rest of America. But historically, non-citizens have not been allowed to vote. Didn't something happen in D.C. this week that now does allow non-citizens to cast legitimately counted ballots? Right, and <laughs> I laugh. Because I mean, that's pretty crazy. Ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how to fix my it, mouth to it, say that. 
it, it, well, it is in, in, a, in a Democratic Party that's that's really gone very far to the left. This this issue takes the cake. So Democrat uh, controlled uh, city council in D.C. voted to allow non-citizens to vote. So if you think about D.C., this isn't just, you know, Hispanic people that have come across. These are these are these are Chinese uh, embassy uh, ambassador uh, embassy uh, individuals. These are people who. You know, there's multiple countries, all countries that are represented in D.C. can now vote. This is the craziest thing ever. And this coming from a place that wants to be the 51st state, I don't think so. Uh, not on my watch. Uh, this is the reason why, this, you know, the kind of this, this pursuit of the woke left is, is ridiculous. Citizens should vote, period. End of discussion. Uh, I, don't, I really don't understand why that's even controversial. We tried to stop it in the House. We actually have authority to overrule uh, the city council. And we've done that with the criminal statutes that just went through. Biden uh, signaled yesterday that he was not going to veto and, in fact, would sign uh, because they're lessening criminal penalties on carjackings when they've got record carjackings and all these things. Uh, but the Senate should have taken this up, too, uh, in my opinion, and, and put, put it on the Biden administration. We don't need to be having uh, people who are Chinese citizens working at the China, Chinese embassy voting in our city council elections, particularly since they are trying to become a 51st state. I think it's the, the worst possible thing that, that the city could have done. Um, but but here we are. Congressman, a lot of us are paying attention to investigations, potential investigations in the oversight and judiciary but, but there's still business to be conducted. There's still subcommittees and committees and, and legislation to pass out of the House. Are, are you guys voting on traditional or legislation in the traditional fashion? Yes, we are. Um, every single day that we're up there, there's you know a couple bills on the, on the floor. Uh, some of them are uncontroversial. Uh, one last week uh, was called the RAIN Act, uh, which would force the administration to, when they, when they issue an executive order, to also have accompanying that uh, an inflationary discussion, if you will, uh, on on that executive order. So when the president cancels the Keystone Pipeline, what is the inflationary impact of that? That's not done currently. Uh, the administration, we actually were joined by, I think, 40 or 50 Democrats in that bill. Uh, you know, inexplicably, there were the people who didn't think that we needed to do that. Uh, but to, to see some of that, uh, I think, is really important. And, and, of course, you know, we're continuing to send things over to um, the Senate. That the committees are, are working, obviously, pumping out various different bills. Some of them are easy, um, and some of them are a little bit more thorny. Uh, but we are continuing to do that. So that, that was the focus this week was the, was the RAIN Act uh, to, to, to highlight uh, the inflationary impact of any executive order uh, or legislation that comes, uh, you know, comes through the administration. I know one thing that was important to you when you ran for office, I know you to be a man of your word, is to make sure that constituents have access to their congressmen. Um, are, are the offices up and running? Are we still working on, you know, phone numbers, emails? Um, kind of, Kind of tell us where we are in relation to if one of your constituents has an issue, how they can communicate with your congressional office. Well, the, the, the easiest way is the website, fry.house.gov, but we, we have officially opened uh, the Grand Strand office. The PD office is uh, coming online. We're continuing to hire a few more people uh, for those, uh, both those offices and Washington as we go through this process, but it's been good. We've been handling passport issues for people, uh, uh, Social Security issues, VA issues for people already, so 
uh, things are kind of up and running, uh, moving. Uh, we finally have laptops and emails. Uh, I think I joked on your show, uh, as much as as much turnover as people see in Congress, just in general, you think that they would be experts at kind of getting new members up and running. But we had to wait a while for, you know, uh, technology and emails and all that kind of fun stuff. But we are uh, all go. And when I'm home, I'm bouncing around in, into different counties. I'll actually be in Florence on Monday. Uh, we've got some meetings and some tours of, of, of different businesses. And so we're going to be in Florence County all day on Monday, uh, and then I go back to, to D.C. on Tuesday. All right, my man. Thank you very much for joining us, Congressman. Um, and we will talk again, what, two weeks from today. That's right. Always a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you very much. So there's the um, the Friday edition of our congressional report. We felt it important. Um, Congressman Fry felt it important to kind of maintain communication with our with our listeners. It's interesting. Um, I've talked to Russell a little bit off the, uh, offline and the frustration he has about how long it takes to get a request done in Washington. You ask for a laptop for an employee, and it, it just takes forever. Hurry up I mean, and it, wait. It, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's there's um there there's office buildings full of full of laptops that aren't being used, but you know they've got to file a report, and even they've got to file a report, <laughs> and then somebody else has to review the report. And to his yeah. point. You'd think they'd have that system down with the congressional offices changing every two years, right? They change every two years, (laughs) and um, but but in typical bureaucratic fashion, why hurry when you don't have to? Right? You know, why say that I'm surprised? Why speed up the process uh, when you don't have to? But but Russell's really excited about the opportunity he has in representing uh, this district. uh, Kind of a uh, a hotly contested. I remember it'll be interesting to watch Trump tour South Carolina because Trump was the central figure and um and tom rice former congressman russell fry currently a member of congress i don't know if trump left his fingerprints on south carolina in any more profound a way than that particular um congressional district and the day that tom rice cast that ballot i understand a man voting his soul i certainly respect uh and really to some degree admire a guy who's willing to put his political career on the line political neck uh, in jeopardy um but i can remember uh, reaching out to a member of his team saying, I hope he mashed the wrong button and asked for a mulligan or a do-over, but he didn't. He did what he felt he had to do, and the political uh, – I mean, you knew what was heading uh, his way when you looked at the Trump numbers in in Horry County. And um, it'll be interesting to see what Trump's numbers are in Horry County as we have the 2024 Republican primary. Um, that, that'll be very actively um, engaging here sooner than later, I would be South surprised Carolina. if they're not still very strong. They're strong, but they're not as strong as they were. I mean, I've been privileged to some inside information. Mm. They're not quite as strong as they were. Now, now I don't know if people are, are are tired of Trump, or they're just not. I mean, he's not front and center. You know what? He's not right. back on their mind. Maybe he makes a trip through Horry County, and the numbers, you know, ascend back to where uh, they were prior. Uh, DeSantis was in Davenport. Oh, excuse me. He will be in Davenport and Des Moines, Iowa next week. I mean, that's all you need to know, guys. <laughs> I mean, I understand he's selling a book. I get he's on a book tour. Right. But the majority of presidential campaigns are launched via a book tour. But he'll be in Davenport, Iowa, I think Tuesday, and Des Moines, Iowa on Wednesday of next week. Maybe it's a coincidence. Well, I mean, yeah, he thinks there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of potential book customers in Iowa. Or, or there's a caucus that he needs to be well aware of. Take a break. Back. In just a few. I'm actually reading uh, uh, c- kind of an essay on the Baltic state of Estonia. 
they're regularly ranked number one in the developed world for their tax system. I mean, it's said to be conductive to economic growth. It's simple to enforce. Um, It's light on the wallet, so to speak. And a report by the U.S. Tax Foundation has suggested ways the United States could adopt some of its ideas, its principles. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, let me think, it's the southern and northernmost. I think it's the northernmost of the three country. Was it Latvia? Um, I'm just sitting here thinking Lithuania. to myself, you're the only person I'm going to come across today who is reading an essay on Estonia. Well, but I hadn't read it yet. I'll read it over the weekend. Okay. The, the only reason I'm intrigued by it is the, is the taxes. The, the, I mean, the okay. tax foundation argues that Estonia is the model the United States needs to follow. Now, when you talk about you're talking about Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, you're talking about a, a lot more generic nation. I mean, it's far less diverse. Uh, it's not a big ass country like America is, with a lot of different tentacles and what? A big. Ass well, I mean, it is. I mean, America's 335 million people. You're man. right. I mean, it's you're right. It's a complicated beast. Can't I mean, argue it really, with your description. And truly is. I mean, you're allowed to think what you want to think. I'm allowed to think what I want to think. Uh, didn't we talk earlier about Russia? You know, the Russian people are made to think a certain thing. The Chinese are made. Um, to think a certain thing. And um, and I think Joe made an interesting point. When you don't have a gun and somebody tells you you better think this or else and they've got a gun, uh, you didn't bring a knife to a gunfight, you brought nothing to a gunfight. So, um, I mean, that's always been a distinct advantage of the American people, their their ability to defend themselves, to um, create chaos within uh, the government. But Estonia is regularly ranked number one in the world when it comes to um, uh, conductive to economic growth taxation, um, simple to understand, simple to enforce. And the only reason I'm interested in is because the Tax Foundation has has, has done an essay. They, uh, they're basically laying out some of the ways the U.S. could adopt some of its some of its ideas. But but I still think it's going to be interesting. I'm um, talking about the, the Ukrainian and the, and the Poland situation. Um, Estonia was occupied by the Soviet Union for pretty much the entire Cold War. Um, since 1991, Estonia's economy has been, I think, the best in the world. I'm not saying it's as big as America. Obviously, it's not. But its economic growth, um, its GDP percentage, I think, has been a rival to China. And with China, we wonder whether they're cooking um, the books or not. But anyway, I'm going to read over the weekend when I'm um, sipping on bourbon, trying to better understand, I do my best understanding and and pondering uh, when I'm sipping on a good uh, drink of Jefferson's good. Ocean. Got a plan. Um, yeah, we talked a little bit about that yesterday, but um, I want to read this report from the Tax Foundation that kind of lays out how the U.S. should adopt some of the ideas of Estonia. It's kind of interesting. Estonia was a part of the Soviet Union until 1991. So since 1991, they figured out a better a more economic friendly way to tax the private sector uh, to the point of outgrowing, I I guess from a freedom index, one of the freest people in in the world, that being the good old um, US of A. 843-661-0937 is our number. How many of the delegation will be here in about seven or eight minutes? I don't know. Hang around and find out. 843-661-0937. We have a full house with our delegation this morning. Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lowe, Representative Jay Jordan are all on board with us. I'm going to give them a copy of the um, the the essay I'm reading over the weekend on the Estonia tax policy. Maybe we can adopt some of that in our in our native state of South Carolina. Let's Please go to the don't. phone. Someone's there. Yeah. Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles. 
Hey, good morning, and good morning to the delegation. I'll tell you, I really wish that I was represented by you guys. I used to be in Phillips District, and they moved the district lines, and I'm represented by um, a guy I don't know and a, and a state senator from Manning, so it, it, it would be really nice to be represented by by you folks. But I got a quick comment about uh, student loans. Ken, you were talking about them yesterday. It, when someone signs to take out a student loan, where does the money go? Does the money go straight to the school or does it go to the student? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, Charles. I would imagine, and I'm, I'm, I'm basing a guess on some things I've heard, I think the money goes to the school. I'm going to tell you something. The money goes to the student, and I can tell you how I know that. Because in 40 years in my previous career, when I actually worked with Mike some during that, that period of time, um, I actually sold cars to people who said, I've got to wait until I get my student loan to get my down payment. When I get my student loan, I'll have my down payment. I had a relative that posted on Facebook one time, my student loan needs to hurry up and come through because they're about to repo my car. So with these loans that are being forgiven are not college graduates that have earned a degree and we're helping them pay for that degree probably at least 20 percent and maybe more of those people we're forgiving loans where they bought a new iphone or paid a down payment on a car with some of that money i just thought i'd point that out thank you charles appreciate that jay you were nodding your head i was just saying i remember um when I was in law school, of course, I was lucky. My parents helped me out a little bit. My wife was working at the time we got married between college and law school. She was a nurse and helped, helped put me through law school. Um, but then we had a um, um, our first child at the very end and got a little tight. And so I, I borrowed a little bit of student loan money. And I, in my situation, Charles is 100% right. Um, took out a little bit of a loan and it came right to me. And it was a, you know, it was a little bit, you know, do I take all this money and put it towards the, the, the academics or does a little bit go in my pocket? Um, of course, the, the reality kicked in for me. I had to pay back every penny of that loan. So, But I think Charles is right. As to his redistricting point, I'm sorry, Charles. You should have given me a better deal on that car I bought from you years and years ago, <laughs> and I wouldn't have had to draw you uh, where you got put um, back when. <laughs> yeah, see, J- J- Jay's the cat daddy at drawing the districts. He's the guy that um decides whether you're in or out of um of whatever district we're talking about. Let's stay with student debt for a second, because to me, and this is we can we can get philosophical and less specific about the General Assembly. There, there's something, and I'm no rocket scientist, and I'm not a college drop. I mean, excuse me, I am a college dropout, not a college a college graduate. I, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life. I do regret that I didn't stick to it and uh, and, and get a degree from somewhere in something. Um, but but what, what, how can you make this any more complicated than somebody who didn't go to college, who didn't have a degree, who didn't borrow any money, is all of a sudden supposed to share the burden of somebody who did go to college, did get a degree, and did borrow money. I mean, what am I missing here? You, you guys are reasonable legislators, and I understand at times things get complicated. I do. But 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 how can we make that, Mike, I'll start with you, any more complicated than that? Ken, it's one of those shake, shake my head kind of moments. Yeah. You know, this is the greatest country on earth, but there are moments of absurdity. Um, when you... When we talk about a nation that has been built on the foundations of hard work and work ethic and individual responsibility, yet we're talking about a socialistic policy where we share the burden, we share the debt, we share the 
the, the responsibilities. You didn't sign up for, for Jay's, for Tom's loan. I didn't sign up for Jay's. Jay didn't sign up for my loan. We married well, by the way. I, my wife put me, helped me put, go through business school and while I was in school. So nobody signed up for that. It's our responsibility to pay it back. And, uh, the conversation of, well, that's just not fair. Life didn't turn out the way I thought. My degree isn't earning what I thought it would. I'd like somebody else to pay for it. Uh, it's absurdity. Jake, you want to jump in here? You know, it's one of those classic examples where it probably started out with a good idea. Everybody ought to have a leg up to try and get an education, and that'll help them better their future and the lives of, of a lot of people in the country. And it went off the rails when the government decided they would get involved and, and backstop everything. And next thing you know, the next phase of that, you fast forward 10, 20 years, and you're where Mike said, you're in absurdity where, well, why don't we just forgive the loan? You know, and that's the next step to get the people you represent, your constituency, to want to vote for you. Uh, and it becomes a situation where people are trying to get votes out of it, and they, they're they willing to put forward the absurdity. And, Philip, one of the unknowns of this, and um uh, because I host a radio show and have to read more than you care to, to to know, is in the Obamacare legislation, we went from being the guarantor of the debt to the issuer of the debt. I mean, it's not that the, the government's the co-signer anymore. The government actually issues the debt. I mean, there there's a lending apparatus within the government that, that basically gives this kid X number of dollars or that kid X number of dollars. I'm a simple man. You three are complicated. But help me help me make heads or tails of that, Representative Lowe. Well, for the life of me, I can't see why you didn't hang around in school a few more years <laughs> on the beer plan. I, well, I just don't understand yeah, yeah, why you right. got out. Now, and that's the plan I was on. <laughs> and, that's, and, and I say that to say, you know, schools know that they're giving a bunch of semi-worthless degrees out there. Kids know they're in there having a party, and they're taking the easiest degree they can get by with to stay in school. And and they know the gig. They just can't, they can't pay it back because the degree – isn't worth the paper it's printed on in some cases. Now, and obviously, things change, too. You can get out in a field and halfway through your life, that whole field can crash because of some technological advance. So, but, you know, you signed up for it. It's your money. You want to have a debate on the future? Do we, do we help kids through school more than we're already helping with all the grant programs and all? Then let's debate the future. The past is over. You signed up. It's yours. Got to figure out a way to pay. I'll add, I'll add two nuggets here. And, and my, my father, when I went to Walford, my dad gave me a check for, I think, $610. And that was a semester at Walford. I had a little bit of help football. I mean, they paid for some books and a little bit of other things. But I remember the check was $610. I paid for my daughter's parking pass at USC, and it was $505. Wow. I mean, the parking, the parking pass for a year at USC was as much as a semester of college room dorm and everything you know what room and board and everything included and uh, and the second thing i'll add is i mean i i'm, I'm kind of a pragmatic politician former politician i'll make a deal here's the deal i'll make with uh with those who believe we should pay off student debt let's forgive all student debt if the government agrees to get out of the business uh, of either guaranteeing or or insuring the in other words we're not going to lend the money we're not going to guarantee the money we're going to let the the capital markets the private sector decide universities will have to decide whether this kid is a good investment. That kid has the right curriculum or criteria to go to, to said university. And if the, the kid borrows the money and doesn't pay it back, he and the school have to say grace over that however they choose. I'm not philosophically for paying anything off that I didn't borrow, but the government's in this weird place. So I would be for forgiving every penny of student debt 
if the government would agree that we're not going to have a hand in the lending or, or, or transacting of funds from colleges to students and families. Is any uh, Philip wants to jump in here. I'm sorry. And, and I like that idea. And I, I was thinking of one the other day, and it's like, why don't we trade something off? Why didn't the government say, all right, I'll pay this debt off? That was so you could get an education, so you could get ahead. Now, some of this money that you might be expecting down the road, we may have to trade off something. You know, you're now able to take care of yourself, right? I mean, that's what we gave more, you this money for. More money in your pocket because you don't have that debt. Yeah, so, so all this money that, that may be coming your way, maybe there's a trade there. That, see, that that's the pragmatist and um, a business guy. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Melinda in Florence. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Melinda. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How about you all? We are well. Good. Um, I'd like to first make a comment about the student loans. Um, Not many people, I would probably say average and below, do not have the quality of life or the exceptions in life that has been spoken about this morning. Um, I'm an orphan. I come from an orphanage. And I went to college um, in my late 30s because I wanted to further my education and be better at what I was doing. Um, so I did have to use student loans. I do owe the government a lot of money, but I have six degrees that doesn't get me anywhere in Florence, South Carolina. Um, so, you know, I get a little disturbed about it because not everybody has the same story and there's always different circumstances for everybody. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask was the delegate. Um, I live right off of Flowers Road in Florence, and every road in Florence, you cannot hardly drive down that does not have a hole, a patch, some kind of groove in it that just beats your car to death. And the road that I live off of, you cannot ride down the road, not one single place, and not hit a hole. So I would just like for you to give me an explanation of where our penny tax is going. I do not, I ride around a lot of Florence because I go from one side to the other every day and I go different ways every day. I do not see anywhere that they are paving any new roads, that they're not, I just don't see it happening. So I'd like to know where our penny tax is going because I'm getting a little ticked off about my car, which is, you know, valuable to me that gets me back and forth to work but it beats it to death because you can't ride anywhere that doesn't have a hole thank you melinda I, you, appreciate the question let's um let's let philip you're nodding your head i mean the the, the penny tax let, let's where we, we voted to spend the money to fix the roads because we didn't have recurring revenue where where are we in allocating or appropriating or prioritizing those funds well this year and last year i Last year, we would have gotten about $3.7 million to the county transportation fund, and that takes care of county roads. Uh, the General Assembly tripled that money last year. We got $10 million. We're on track for that same thing. If, this, if it passes the House, it's going to be coming to the floor. The budget calls for a, a total of $10 million again coming. So that's three times what we do. $3.7 million comes from the taxes that come on gas tax and it's distributed right back out to the county that actually supplied that money. So you sell gas, then you get the proportion of your money that comes back to your county. That's why the coastal counties get more than anybody. And of course, I-95 helps sure, Florence. Sure. You know, they stop by and buy a lot. But but we have tripled that money and you can go back to the penny sales tax here that they increased, the one cent one originally was uh was for widening roads and repairing roads here 
I can't drive to work. I can't get out of my neighborhood without being stopped by the road work. So in some places, there's a lot of road work. I have to cross alligator to get to this place here. Who decides, okay, we're allocating funds. We're appropriating funds. Who decides which road comes before the next road? I mean, is, is there a committee in place? Is it local? Is it state? Is it federal? In other words, when, when the money ends up where the money ends up, who gets to make a decision this road before that road? Yeah, that's it's from multiple pots of money. So you, you have the federal money, and usually that's a match. And I think I explained on here that we put a lot of money in to get a lot of match money back in. We've got the eighth uh, largest appropriation coming to South Carolina for our federal roads in the, in the country this year because of money we had available because we didn't close up from COVID. So we've had some good budget money. That money goes to the county uh, through the gas tax and whatever we appropriate. So that comes out of a general fund, and, and the CTC commission makes those decisions as to where it goes. Uh, and then and, and you've got kind of more uh, – there's there's one more group that, that we have in, in Florence that, that takes care of the – it's the Flats Committee. Flats. And then it's, it's got some city stuff and, and all that goes along. So it's it's a combination of all three. Uh, but we try to use common sense as to where the most traveled roads are and which are the worst. So if you look at safety and, and how much traffic is on it to prioritize. Mike? Well, uh, Melinda, you had, first of all, thank you for calling. You had two very good points there. And, and, and Philip just did a great job explaining the roads. But uh, I do empathize and sympathize with your, your plight on the, the student loans. Um, sometimes you can feel like you've been sold a bill of goods. And our, you're not the only one who's got a story like that. And you're right. And you know, I, I wasn't an orphan. I was put into the foster care system after my mom gave me up for adoption. And then I was eventually adopted. But we've all got different stories. And I had to take out a lot of loans um, in order to get through graduate school. What I hear from constituents, though, Melinda, is that it's not loan forgiveness. And as the media explains it as student loan forgiveness, it's student loan transference. And what I hear from the, the farmer in Johnsonville and the plumber in Pamplico and the construction worker who works over at Nucor here in Florence is that they feel, you know, I didn't take out those loans, but why should I be responsible for them? So I think there's certainly an appetite for, for an understanding. And Ken, you brought up enough times that higher education um, isn't the path that it's been portrayed to be in terms of success. And a lot of money has been spent um, and a lot of students who are even graduates or undergraduates have this debt and they don't know what to do with it because they're not earning the returns to pay it down. Um, but yet at the same time, it's about transparency. Our government gives hundreds of millions to nations who are not our allies or not our friends. There's waste. There's spending that shouldn't be done and it needs to be accountable, needs to be transparent. So before the, the, the average regular American wants to pay off someone else's debt, while they can sympathize, that's loan transference, and they don't want it transferred to them. They just want more transparency and, and better spending controls in government. Yeah, we're not forgiving the debt. We're just holding somebody else responsible for the debt. Jay, we got behind on roads, but there's no doubt about that. We, we struggled for a long time to find recurring revenue. We're not going to fix every road as fast. As a lot of people, I mean, I hear that and I try to explain, look, we got, we got behind and we're trying to catch up, but it's going to take a few, a few cycles of funding. That's exactly right. If you go back, it was sort of one of those compounded problems in that, um, you know, the state took on a lot, a lot of roads that really shouldn't have taken on going back in time. Um, 
if you're out riding on a road in a neighborhood, you might be on a state road. And that's probably not the original plan was for that road to be a state road. Um, didn't fund it properly going way back. And then on top of that, we had a major economic downturn that came along that, that shrunk, you know, revenue for everybody, not just government and put, put us in a bad, bad situation as far as our road funding. Uh, came to a situation where we had to make an aggressive decision to try and rebuild roads. It became a safety issue as much as anything. It also became an economic issue that we had um, a lot of industry telling us not coming to South Carolina. And in fact, we might just leave South Carolina because our roads are in such deplorable shape. Um, put forward that independent sort of path of revenue to try and fix the roads. And I believe that has helped tremendously. I'll give some credit to that the penny, uh, the county penny too. If you want to go up and you, you can probably do a Google search to the Florence County penny uh, and it'll give you, there's a, there's a document out there. You'll, you should be able to find pretty quickly, maybe even through the County website and it'll show you because it was, because we all voted on it back a few years ago, like we did previous pennies, every, every dollar they're going to spend as a result of money raised off that penny, they have to document, they had to put on that referendum to show this is where the money's going. So there's a list of roads out there and they're just going down that list paving those roads that they asked the voter for the money to be able to go pay those roads. Well, explain. We'll take a break. Our first break of the hour. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Got a couple of calls. Let's go there. Jim and Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, I hope you don't mind real quick if I talk out of both sides of my mouth, but, uh, you know, it's, it's that's really actually good. admired on this show. I mean, we, we don't hold any, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's a normalcy of wake up Carolina. Join the crowd. <laughs> taken after my uh, mentor there, Ken. Arnold. There you go. There you go. Hey, but it's, you know, it's absurd that we are discussing, uh, forgiving $10,000 for the student loan debt, but it's also absurd that we loan, uh, children, 18 year old children who can't buy cigarettes or beer, hundreds of thousands of dollars and there's literally no plan in place to repay it. Um, but gentlemen, you know, we're seeing state after state taking measures to protect children, for lack of a better term, from evil. You know, Tennessee's banning child mutilation in the name of transgenderism. They're banning drag shows performed for children. Governor DeSantis is uh, taking on the blue-haired leftists, infiltrating education, pushing porn in the name of reading material. Uh, Louisiana has taken legislative measures to make it difficult for children to access free online pornography. Um, so what measures are the General Assembly um, at least discussing uh, to protect our children here in South Carolina? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate the call. Philip, I'll start with you. Well, you know, we've, we've been there seven weeks. This week we passed a bond bill tightening up all that. We had the Blaine Amendment that gave parental choice. Uh, we dealt with the uh, co the Second Amendment issues. Um, we have veteran services we've passed, uh, a workforce development bill, an abortion bill, a fentanyl bill, critical race theory, and we passed a su Supreme Court justice that was conservative. So we're doing a lot in, in, in the interest of just that one idea about children I don't have one listed on here, but doesn't mean it's not coming. Sure. So, we, I mean, the, the House is busy at work. Mike, I got a point to you. I mean, you, you're, you're a new senator. Your crowd don't move quite as fast as the House does. I would imagine you've noticed that in yeah, your time there. We have, but my colleague now needs to share some credit because <laughs> we already passed an abortion bill sure. before they did this year. It's just a different bill. So that's the conversation we had the other day mm -hmm. about the heartbeat bill 
versus the Human Life Protection Act. But but is Jim's concerns warranted? I mean, I know the three of you to be about as conservative as anybody in Columbia. So when Jim talks about gender identity and transgenderism and education, protecting kids, let's kind of go down that road for a second. What is a priority of Mike Rickenball when it comes to our educational system and protecting um, our children? Yeah, it's really not a, a single answer. It's multifaceted because, as I've mentioned before, it's protection of the family, not just in one area. So I am for school choice because, again, as I hear from our constituents, I've paid my tax dollars. Don't I deserve a say in where and how my child is educated? And that doesn't always mean the, the media, some of the left, some of the, the ad, those against school choice want to talk about, well, it's always going from public to private. It's not always going from public to private. It's a lot of families that say there's a better public school choice. And while I sympathize that there are tough areas and tough schools, I'm responsible for my child. And if there's a better public school option, if there's a charter school option, I want to exercise that option. If it's an arts magnets program. So school choice is big because, again, the government has a wonderful way of forgetting it's not the government's money. The government is funded because people pay taxes into that. And that's an individual family's right. So school choice is big. Uh, We just dropped a bill that I co-sponsored 48 hours ago, as a matter of fact, uh, regarding drag shows. There are five cities in South Carolina where you can take a minor to a drag queen show. Now, somebody might say, well, in the list of priorities, you know, why is that a big priority? It is a continuous chipping away at the family, at the culture. To let a, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old be able to put dollar bills in a drag queen's garter belt is a chipping away at the, the, the societal core, the, the conservative core that has made our country great. So, yeah, it is a big deal. The we, the second bill we dropped yesterday that I again I co-sponsored was the it's called a, it's gender dys, dysmorphia gender mutilization we will not allow public dollars to be used to change the gender in surgery on children under eighteen years old it is absurd that we would allow a fourteen year old to say you know what I think that uh, I was born a boy but I want to be a girl you know. Can we use public dollars to change my gender? There's kids who want to be astronauts, who think they can fly. They want to be a pirate. Kids change their minds, but yet we want to use public tax dollars to change their gender. So I was happy to co-sponsor that bill. We have got to protect our family, Ken. Jake? You know, first off, I'm just glad there's, I live in a place where someone, we have people that'll pick up the phone and call and say, these issues are important to me. So thank you, Jim, for the call in that respect. Uh, Philip just read off a list of what I consider a very, I'm, I'm proud of that list. I'm you guys proud, have been busy. I'm proud that we work hard on issues. Those are, those are uh, a good cross section of bills, whether they're economic, whether they're pro law and order bills, whether they're in, in, in my opinion, pro life bills, you know, all kinds of quality pieces of legislation that we can put our names on. I'd point to a couple things. Number one, wait and see, there's still more coming on some of these issues that, that, that Jim referenced. Also, I'd point back to some of the things we've already done. Last year, we passed the Save Women's Sports Bill. Um, that was, you know, it's one of those things It's hard to believe we need a bill. We need a law to say, you know, what that bill says, that if you're born a boy, you, you, you play the boy sports, and if you're born a girl, you need to be, in, you know, doing that for, for those kind of situations. Um, so I'd say two-part. We Look at what we have done. Look at what we, we have coming. Let, let's, let's you. We got another call, Rev. Let's yeah. go to the phone. I'm sorry. Matt in Florence, you are on with the delegation. 
Hey guys, uh, my my topic on this is just uh, why am I involved in it? Like, let the contract between this be between the swindler and the swindlee or swindled, I guess. Uh, put colleges on the hook for this stuff. I know we can't do it nationally, but we can set an example statewide where if a college offers a crap degree to a kid, they're on the hook for it, not us. Or have placement, force them to have placement programs where whenever a student's done with their degree. Uh, the college is in some way responsible for making sure that they can find a line of work in that field. I guarantee you that would get rid of all this Shakespearean theater crap that's going on. That's just my opinion. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. Mike, I'll start with you if you don't mind. I'll set a table. Um, I mean, I've called it a scam for years. I mean, I really and truly have. I think higher education is of great value. I'm a Jeffersonian. Thomas Jefferson was a leading advocate for higher education. He felt that the more educated and more enlightened a nation was, the better it would eventually become. But but it's become scamish in the nature. Um, but 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 Matt, it's a federal student loan program. I mean, the the, the state's not securing nor authorizing the, the the granting of funds to student A, B, um, C, D, or E. Are there things at the state level we can do to discourage kids from going deeper and deeper in debt? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If an 18-year-old wants to borrow money to go to Texas A&M and get a degree in petroleum engineering, there's probably money well spent. But if an 18-year-old wants to go to said university and get a degree in Greek literature, Shakespearean theater, you got to question whether that's in the kid's best interest. Is it the role of the General Assembly to protect young people in South Carolina from going deeper and deeper in debt with, with college degrees that may or may not perform well in the marketplace? Yeah, I think the role of the General Assembly is to fund and highlight better options. And in particular, I'm talking about the technical education system. Florence and Darlington Tech, as well as our technical college system in South Carolina is one of the best in the nation. We hear that over and over. It's our job to make sure they have the funds they need to continue to be as strong as they are. But then it's our individual jobs as legislators and as community leaders to express to young people and to their parents to the public schools, to the private schools, understand what tech offers. You can go to tech, get a two-year degree, an associate's degree, come out as a pipe fitter, as a plumber, as an HVAC technician, industrial maintenance, making fifty to $60,000 a year with zero student debt. Zero. It is almost unfathomable that we've got kids going off to get an English literature degree at $100,000 in student loans to do what when you got kids coming out two years at a tech making $50,000 a year with no debt. The program I did helping Florence work three years ago where Sharice and I picked up all 14 of the new guidance counselors from Florence School District 1. We took them to tech all morning, let them three that see the HVAC program, the industrial maintenance program, and the welding program, served them lunch, and then took them to Otis Elevator GE Healthcare and Honda to see the kind of jobs they could have. The key was the guidance counselors needed to see that to be able to tell the families, let's talk about another option. We've got to get rid of the stigma that says that technical college is great if you're not smart enough to go to a four-year school. That's a misnomer and it's hurting our kids. We got to provide better opportunities. Jay, I mean, I guess the role as an activist is what you play. It's the federal student loan program. We can't dictate exactly what kids do. Families decide that in their best interest. But 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 as a, a political activist in a weird way, what, what do you think your responsibility is 
in, in that particular ordeal. I think it's along the lines of what Mike said. We're to be cheerleaders, cheerleaders for the success stories. You know, and that, that is, that is in our area, two great institutions in Francis Marion and Florence Darlington Tech. Um, you look at Francis Marion, they're, they're doing a great job producing teachers and nurses and things like that, that are, um, one of the things I love about both those institutions, they focus on the things that are successful already here in Florence and the PD region and building out on those already pre-existing opportunities. I think that's that's the biggest thing, working with those folks. And one of the things I've been, uh, since I've been in the legislature, and Philip, you know, really helped me with this too, you know, those folks will talk to you and work with you. Um, they're, they're more than willing to sit down and, and help uh, chart a path forward. And I think we've We've done that. We said, what what can we help you do, whether it be through the, the state budget or through other things like that, to help you succeed? Philip? We don't have a lot between a contract that is essentially between an individual and the federal government. Even, you know, the schools don't have a lot of worry, but I think that's his point. The schools need to have more. I'm a favor of, rather than punishing, of, I would rather incentivize. And I think that's what we did, this workforce development a uh, uh, bill that we passed had a goal of 60% of the people coming out of high school would have a clear path into uh, something in, in the technical air arena. A career. Yeah, a career type of a, of a path. And I think we're focused on that. And, and that's basically why uh, you can just about go to tech about anywhere for free if it's in a, a needed and wanted a job. And there's things in tech they may not want to support, but these these uh, grants and and all of the money that we're putting into that is leaning it towards. And I'm gonna tell you, Florence is gonna grow. The South is growing. South Carolina is what the fourth biggest destination for people now. And, and there's a lot of money in this year's government that we set aside to help with industrial sites, just like they're helping us with our battery plant here. Preparing young people for careers. We'll take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. We have all of our delegation members here uh, for the next, what, five or six or seven minutes. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Buzz in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Morning, Buzz. Good morning. Good morning to everybody that's on the other end of this line. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. All right. Okay, I'm calling about three bills that's in the house. House Bill 3096, 3772, and 527. If you're not familiar with them, I would like for you to become familiar with them. And co-sponsor them if you so desire. But I would like for you to... What are, what are the bit, Buzz, what are the, bit, what are the bills dealing with? Uh, South Carolina history and heritage heritage act you know y'all know what the heritage act is yep and that these are bills to improve the heritage act and make the heritage act more efficient so you know south carolina is a unique state it's uh too small to be a republic and and too large to be a, an insane asylum so we kind of unique in that way. But, you know, we've got a lot of history. And we do not need our history torn down, our malign, uh, these other plaques putting up, you know, that makes, you know, 
like the city of Charleston, want to put up plaques that. Uh, we got you. We'll we'll try to work on that the best way we know how. Investigate and report back to you. I, some of those bills, I don't know the numbers to some of those bills. I know what the heritage act. We got another call. Let's try to squeeze him in before we take our break. Greg in Johnsonville. Good morning. Good morning. I'll make this quick and sweet. Um, I don't know if this is in the delegation's wheelhouse, but it kind of has to do with public education. Um, the private schools that are playing sports in the public school education league or public league, South Carolina High School League, the public schools have absolutely zero chance hardly of beating these private schools. Um, the private schools can recruit, which I know they do. Everybody knows they do. So is that not hurting the public school as far as, you know, competitiveness and being able to compete? Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, I'm with you. I mean, I think that is totally unfair for those schools to be allowed to compete in the same conference and league as the, uh, as the public schools do. And now I can argue whether it's a priority of the General Assembly to get involved in that. I mean, there's abortion bills and tax bills and, and workforce bills. But I mean, I'll ask you to you guys. I mean, is, is, it the, is it the job of the General Assembly to make high school athletics fairer, um, more competitive? Because it is unfair for a school like Johnsonville, who has to choose its athletes from within that defined school district to compete against a school who plays by a completely and totally different set of rules. Mike, you're nodding your head, and Johnsonville's your district. Well, Johnsonville, and, and both the Golden Flashes in the baseball season, as in the football season, uh, they lost the uh, state championship uh, to schools over there. was not parity right there. So I fully agree. Uh, what I, My understanding is that that's why there's Skiza, which is the independent schools like Trinity Burns and King's Academy and, and the private Florence Christian, the private schools play in a league, and then the public schools play in a league. So I don't disagree at all, and I think there does need to be a real close remedy to say that if you're a private school and you can recruit, you accept tuition, you play by different rules, you play in Skiza. If you're a public school where you have to play the cards that are dealt to you, you play in a public league. Jay, it's almost like they need their own league. You've got a league for public schools, a league for private schools, and then another league for schools that choose to recruit. Yeah, this is a, a newer issue. I mean, going go back to the dark ages when I was playing basketball at Florence Christian, um, you know, we played the public schools, but we got beat like a drum. <laughs> so this this is a new entity where there's obviously a lot but of But you didn't recruit, nor did they. No, that's, that's correct. It was, it was a different era. Um, this is a new issue. It seems to me that the logical solution is kind of what you just described if you your public school, you play in the public league and you compete against other schools in your, you know, category of population and then um, the other side of the coin the same way. And Philip, I mean, a lot of your opinions, I mean, you've got an opinion, I have an opinion, but then you've got the job to legislate. There's only so many legislative days. There's somebody only, so only so many things you can get across the, the finish line. Um, and, and I understand the caller's plea because I'm with you 1000% in agreement with what he says, but I'd rather see the General Assembly work on workforce and, uh, and and can we, you know, lessen the cost of education, higher education in our state? Some of the other, what, what I consider to be maximal priorities. So hold on just a minute. Now, Johnsonville's in my area, too. Okay, you're right. I forgot about so that. So Lucas Atkinson, representative Atkinson for Marion County, sponsored that bill, and I'm a co-sponsor. Okay. And that is to disallow the schools that recruit from competing in the same leagues as the, uh, as the schools that don't. I think it moves the the private schools and those areas that are recruiting and all up until one bracket higher so they're competing with 
probably a, a, a school that is on par with them. Good deal. Good deal. Thanks to all three of you. Um, we got to take a break here, Rev. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments um, to conclude. This will be the decompression hour, right? It begins with an Eagles song, and um, we may talk a little Murdoch trial. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number takes Mondays to make Eagles Fridays. There you go. I like it. Eagles Fly Days. (laughs) Ah, We'll play on words there. Hey, um, we're talking about, do we have a call? We do. Okay, someone's kind of to hold on during the break. Let's go to the phone. Sam Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning, fellas. Um, uh, like my minister tries to make the three observations or points or whatever. I've got three things I want to talk about, but but the real I got the last. I'm gonna say the last one, and this will be real quick. Um, you know, talking about Ukraine. You remember when you used to ride, ride down a country road or whatever, and a dog would start chasing after the car. I'd often, I'd often wonder, well, what would you do if you catch it? And I'll just leave this, this thought about that. Uh, once, if, if, we, if Ukraine was to win the, the war, uh, and, uh, what's, what's going to happen on the rebuilding? What's it going to cost us to help them rebuild their infrastructure and their economy? The second thing is um, the very interesting discussion about higher ed. I am a retired uh, college professor from a private uh, uh, liberal arts institution in South Carolina. And uh, I taught in, in the business department, so I was, a, I was one of the capitalists there. And um, one of the things that I find is a lot of times an 18-year-old will come into college, they have absolutely no earthly idea what they want to do. And so, you know, it's, it's usually not until they reach their sophomore year where they've gone through the general ed courses and they, they've landed on an you know, English course or professor they really like. So they sometimes wind up majoring in that area, and they really don't. I haven't really given it a whole lot of thought. And wouldn't it be neat to have some type of um, internships, um, co-op kind of programs, even at the high school level, where you could get these kids uh, in their very formative years exposed uh, to uh, these kinds of trades and things like that? Because I'm, I'm with you. No, there's a lot of folks that don't need to come to college and can do quite well and better than those that do. And Ken, the other day, uh, I, I had called you guys and I was talking about NASCAR, and um, I was telling you that I like the. I'm, I'm from Darlington, so uh, big NASCAR fan, and um, I like to I like to listen to the scanner, and I like to listen to MRN whenever they go off the broadcast, you know, during commercials. And it's interesting. I like to hear what they have to say. So I often wonder what you guys have to say about us whenever we hang up. But when I mentioned, I started talking about that. She said, "Oh, I got a real story about NASCAR that I want to talk about." Are you, you, and I don't know whether you remember that or what popped in your mind because it's all over the place. Well, I mean, you talked about you talked about Greenville picking Speedway, and I was going to say one of the highlights of my time as lieutenant governor was being allowed to wave the green flag at Greenville picking Speedway. All right, and and I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I'm a country boy. I'm rural. I don't apologize for that. I grew up a NASCAR fan. My dad actually raced cars back in the day, and um, and I can remember racing fighting and going to the Waffle House and eat with the same people they fought, you know, and, and I was a kid, but I can remember like, I thought we were mad at them or they were mad with us. But as a kid, my mom would say, get in the car. They're about to fight. <laughs> and then we would, we would go to the Waffle House at one o'clock in the morning as a kid though. I mean, the, those things are, are I mean, that's a part of who I am. It's, um, it's, it, they're, they're elemental in my life, so to speak. But my story, when you mentioned Greenville pick and speedway, was the opportunity to wave the green flag at Greenville Pickens Speedway. And I think you know this, but a majority of our listeners don't. Most of these drivers cut their teeth 
at places like Greenville Pickens Speedway. Dale Earnhardt Jr., Chase Elliott. You know, talking about NASCAR, the one thing I appreciate, and Rev's heard me say this many times, the reason I'm such a big Dale Earnhardt Jr., Chase Elliott fan, they've never tried to convince you they hit a triple. They know they were born on third base, and they respect the legacy name of their family and how much easier that probably allowed them to get as far into a career as they have. So that that's kind of my NASCAR story, being able to wave the green flag at Greenville Pickens Speedway. Yeah, um, I, I live near Cross Hills near Lawrence, South Carolina, and Lawrence has a, a, a clay dirt track there, and their little moniker on it is uh, the Little Darlington of dirt tracks. And you got to one of those races, and those cars start generating all that dust and everything. And when you come out of there, uh, your car's covered in, 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 in red clay, and you, it's all in your ears and your eyes and your nostrils and everything. And you're right, um, probably one of the most enjoyable NASCAR races that I went to, and this is when Dale Jr. was just kind of getting getting his uh, off taken off. Uh, we went to a, a, a bush race at Hickory Motor Speedway, and their moniker up there is where the NASCAR stars are born. Were born, and uh, those those little short tracks like that. You're you're exactly right. That that's, and I'm glad to see North Wilkesboro um, coming back. Here, here. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it, Sam, a lot. And that's kind of an interesting. Um, guy remembers what we talked about. Rev's fascinated by that. How much connection we have I know. with, I love, our, I love with it. our listenership. I mean, it's very intimate. It's, it's grown over the years. You're part of our lives, whether you like it or not. I think you've allowed us to be a somewhat of a part of your life. And, um, and we really, really, really appreciate, uh, the very personal relationship that we appear to have with many of our listeners. And I say it's the, it's the community. And like you say, the relationship, and it's not only, you know, the listeners with the hosts or whatever. It's also the listeners with the listeners. When when you have one listener call that refers to or answers something a, a listener said earlier that morning or another day, I just think that's great community. Well, I mean, and, and here's the trade. I mean, the, here's the issue Rev and I talk a lot about. I mean, you talk about, you know, I wish we could hear some of the conversations you guys have. We have a very aggressive vision for what we do, but we're not in one of the 20 biggest markets in America. So everything we do is a bit of a stretch. I mean, Rev is very ambitious about where this show wants to be. I'm very ambitious about what I want to accomplish and, and being complacent is not on the radar. You can't do that. You got to always be pursuing a better path forward. How do we get more listeners? How do we generate more revenue? How do we um, integrate ourselves into the digital media with a, with a, uh, you know, soon to be launched podcast. In fact, next week, our first podcast will debut on some of the um, some of the formats, we need you to subscribe. I- I'll level with you. You're the low hanging fruit. I mean, if we can't get our listeners to subscribe to our podcast, we've got no way to be successful in that uh, in that field or format. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we don't take you for granted. We realize that we're doing something pretty unique in the 185th biggest market in America, Rev. Mm, Am I right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe between Florence Sumter and Orangeburg, it would be a little bigger than 185. But this is not a major uh, radio market. Um, there are many, many people who do what I do or what we do in major markets. There ain't a lot of local personalities doing radio shows in a 200th rated market. It's hard. I mean, you got to generate revenue. You got to pay bills. You got to figure out a way to be um, successful. And um, and we're in the for-profit business. This is not NPR. We're not government funded. Uh, we, we can't talk in sugary tones. And have, you know, a handful of liberal listeners. And it doesn't matter what the bottom line looks like. 
because the government subsidizes. There ain't no subsidies going on here. I mean, we eat what we kill, and um, and I'll level with you. When we launch this podcast, if you don't agree to be a part of it, we have very little chance of being successful out there. And Rev can um, tell you much better than I how you can be a subscriber. You can view some of our content. We're going to distribute video and audio. So wherever you listen to podcasts, if you want to hear an audio version, uh, you can just go to, if you're an iTunes subscriber or Google or Amazon or iHeart or Spotify or any of those, you'll be able to, to search No Stop Lights with Ken Art and subscribe to the channel. In fact, I think it's available right now if you go uh, subscribe and that way you'll be notified when new and certainly our debut episode or new episodes are released. And then the video side will be released on YouTube. So subscribe to the YouTube channel to be notified when the videos are distributed. So, and and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty simple. I mean, Ray's the complicated partner in this ordeal. Ray's <laughs> talking about, you know, editing and formatting. and I'm learning. I mean, he's here, you know, dressing. I mean, he's not happy with the colors behind. Uh, we got a screen behind me. He's not happy with the colors because the cameras are affected by some of the other colors. I don't know jack about that. All I know is we need some of that Google money. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I'm after. I want some of that Google money. I've read and heard stories about that that Google money. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I have a burning desire for is get to a point where we are. I mean, we're, we're you know, and, and I, guys, I don't mean that. I mean, of course, I want some of the uh, – I want to be as successful as we possibly can. And this is a partnership but between us and community broadcasters. They've been gracious enough to allow us – to participate in some of the success or failure uh, if it happens. And um, Rev's kind of interested. We've got a sales team here on board. We've got a um, kind of a radio infrastructure on board. And and Rev kind of jokes around with me about the fact that we have no credibility in digital media. I mean, I sat down with Rev yesterday and I said, Rev, I'm worried about this. What are you worried about? I'm worried that we're trying to assume that success on radio translates to success and a podcast, and it doesn't. We earned our keep on radio. I mean, I, you know, we've got some data that shows we do okay in the mornings. I mean, we've got some pretty good data for a pretty extended period of time that says you folks have been very kind to us. We appreciate that more than you know. But but some some of us are operating under the premise that the, the assumption is, well, you succeeded here. Certainly you'll succeed over there, and I just don't buy that. I we told Rev to yesterday, it. and I think he'll vouch for it. I said, Rev, we have zero credibility in digital media. We have none. We've earned some street cred in radio. We really and truly have, and I'm proud of what we've done, and it would have never happened without you. But we have zero credibility in digital media, and I'm not making an assumption about anything. We've got to get out and hustle. We've got to provide good quality content. Uh, I know he'll do his job in making sure it um, looks and sounds the way it should. It's up to me to find stories that I think are interesting, couch an opinion based on some of those stories. And, uh, and it's different. I mean, there's no doubt about it because it's got a visual component. I've had to comb my hair, take showers, wear shirts with collars. Um, I don't think socks matter because it's um, it's from the waist up, so to speak. The other day when we were getting you ready to record, you were you said, I want to, let's do it tomorrow so I can make sure I shave. Yeah, but the, and the, that's something you have to think I mean, about. The shadow. I mean, it, it yeah. was like, I, mean, I want to be respectful of the people that we're speaking with. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we need you to be supportive of the podcast much as you've been supportive of our radio show. And we appreciate that guys. And when I say you're low hanging fruit, that's a, that's a way of saying you're the friends. 
You're our, you're our friends and family. And we're going to depend on you to help not only view, and hopefully you'll find it interesting and, and want to subscribe and listen and view, but you'll also share it out to, to your networks. I mean, that's how this will, will grow in success. So if you are already subscribed to one of the podcast distributors, again, the list, the Spotify's and iTunes, you can search No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. It should find it for you. You can subscribe right now. Also, the YouTube channel is up. There's no content on it yet. We will publish some content next Tuesday, I believe. Um, but if you want to find the channel and subscribe right now, we certainly welcome you to do that. And you can get there through the shortcut youtube.com slash at No Stop Lights. No space there, just youtube.com slash at no stoplights will take you to the page and subscribe. And then if you set the notification to let you know when new content arrives, it'll it'll tell you, obviously, when we publish. Well said. Let's take a break. No, let's don't take a break. Let's take a phone call. David in the PD. Hello, David. Yeah, hey, Ken. Uh, did, did I just hear a man, Hickory, North Carolina? Oh, my gosh. Day outside of Catawba County is a day wasted. Uh, Ken, I probably want to talk longer than do this, but... This whole thing yesterday, man. Uh, you 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 hadn't met Murdoch before, right? Didn't he say you went down I there? I bumped into Alec to... a couple of times, yeah. But I didn't know him. But but uh, yeah, in my political life, I bumped into him a couple of times. I think once at a Gamecock athletic event, and maybe one time at the State House. Didn't you say you had to go down there and I don't know during your tour or whatever? Because I, I call it kiss the ring. I mean, and well, I, I, I remember I remember being made known. There's a family down there that has a lot of political influence. I mean, I'm looking for people who have political influence. And I can remember okay. not knowing much about that part of the state. Some of the um, some of the more experienced hands at politics in South Carolina said, hey, this crowd kind of runs that neck of the woods as it relates to who gets elected, who doesn't get elected, you know, who gets appointed, who doesn't get appointed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember logging that. Uh, in the back yeah. of my head, but but the two yeah. meetings I had, they weren't meetings, David. They were just you know yeah. bump ins. Once at an athletic event, um, and then once at I think the state house, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, because he and Harputley and they are old school Democrats. No question, like no that. question about it. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, I, I was watching Creighton Waters on uh, Stephanopoulos was talking to Creighton Waters. This is the greatest line in the world. He said uh, Murdoch. He talks his way out of accountability. And I'm looking at George Stephanopoulos. Doesn't that describe Bill Clinton? Pretty well, I mean, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, you talk about old school Democrats, and I think we were talking yesterday, somebody got dismissed off the jury. But the gentleman that they – there was a juror this morning, and he said that when it came in, nine said he was guilty. One was unsure. Two was, was not guilty. Uh, so – this whole thing, and, and, and golly, I'm going to leave you this, man, because it gets me emotional because I play football against this dude. I remember back in the day because he's about six. He's tall. He's six four. He probably was about six one back in the day. But this is sad part of this whole thing. The world came to Walterboro. Now that this whole thing may be over, guess what? As Rush Limbaugh said, this drive-by media, guess what? They're going to take off, and they will forget about Walterboro. They'll forget about those cuts, cause all this stuff, because it made them profitable. But anyway, Limbaugh, give him credit. He called it the drive-by media. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. we got to take a break here. Before we do, 
It's time for some. We told you randomly we're going to do trivia instead of um at the end of the show on Monday and Friday. Now's as good a time as any. I know we got a call. If you'll hang in there, we'll get to you as soon as we possibly can. But we have some contractual agreements that we have to honor. One is our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia, sponsored by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. The, pers- uh, the first person that correctly identifies the answer to this question, let me sip on my water here in a second, okay. uh, wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirt. Talking about South Carolina being a fast-growing state, what is the most populated county in South Carolina? What county in South Carolina has more people than any <laughs> other county? In South Carolina, 843-661-0937. The first answer wins, once again, six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirts, courtesy of our good friends and partners, Pepsi of Florence. The most populated county in all of South Carolina is, do we have a call? Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Uh, Greenville County. Greenville County, 519,000. 178 per the last census. Who is this and where are you calling from? It's Mike in Florence. Mike, thank you a lot. Hang on just a second. I'll hand you back off to the Royal Rev of Radio. He'll get your information. We'll get you some of that Pepsi product. Some of those um, takes Mondays to make Fridays t-shirt. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Rev, I'm going to give you a test. You ready? Extra credit. Uh-oh. Give me the five counties that have more than 300,000 people in South Carolina. Okay. This is per the 2021 American Community Survey that was a part of the 2020 census. How many people? 300. Give me five counties that have more than, there are five counties in South Carolina that have yep. an excess of 300,000 people. Okay. Give me the counties. All right. Greenville, obviously. Correct. 519,000. Richland. 414,000. Charleston. 404,000. Ori. 350,000. Uh, Spartanburg. Mm, you're right. You got it right. Wow. Okay. You didn't think I did? Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Uh, but but you referred to radio markets. I know what you did. Yeah. The Greenville Spartanburg radio market. is a large The market. Myrtle Beach radio market. The, the, the Richland, the Columbia radio market. Is that fair to say? That's how sure. you evaluated accordingly. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Good deal. Um, Horry County will probably exceed 400. Nah, they'll be over 400,000 before you know it. And we'll have four over 400,000. Spartanburg's growing, but not at the rate Horry County's growing. Horry's the fastest-growing county in South Carolina today. I was actually on a um, – I'm a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. They had a kind of a Zoom meeting, and there were about 350 or 60 or 70 people on the Zoom meeting. I didn't do the video. I just did the audio when I wasn't listening to the Alec Murdoch trial. And, um, and one of the guys that appeared was from the Southern Company, and he insinuated – that the the country is beginning to experience some political headwinds. I mean, excuse me, some economic headwinds. And he talked about how um, businesses and consumers. He's talking about when a recession is headed our way, but he was talking about how resilient businesses and consumers have been with uh, high prices and high interest rates. I mean, normally when prices are high and 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 interest rates are high, there's an economic slowdown. Well, the guy from the Southern Company says that he believes. The South is going to be immune to some of the economic hardships because of uh, the tremendous number of people moving down here. I mean, you're adding economic activity when you come, when you build, when you buy, when you go to the grocery store, when you get your car fixed, when you listen to the radio. I mean, the South, South Carolina included, is one of the fastest growing states in America. So despite 
despite the higher inflation, the higher interest rates, the South may be somewhat immune because they have, I mean, obviously those are headwinds. I mean, any economist will say high inflation, high interest rates, put your big boy pants on. There may be some trouble brewing and heading your way, but the, the guy that from the Southern company, I mean, they're in the power business, so he would probably have a pretty good understanding of, uh, of where the economy is. He says, yeah, I mean, I hear you, but we're adding so many people to these Southern states so quick after COVID. I mean, COVID, we saw a mass exodus from some of these Northern states um, down South. Now, now the, um, the parties will argue they're leaving the blue states heading to red states. And there's no denying that. I mean, it is absolutely the truth. But I don't know if they're looking for political refuge as much as they are better weather and a cheaper way uh, of living. Let's go to the phone. Bruce and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bruce. Uh, listen, some years back there was a, a political movement called the Tea Party. And we seem to uh, wake up the Republican Party somewhat to the fact that, you know, hey, they, they started to listen to us about more about what we wanted to do. I think we need to have a new movement called the Common Sense Party. And I'll tell you why. Merrill Smith came last night and talked to the local GOP uh, meeting here in Sumter, and he mentioned a couple of bills that were recently passed. And one of them was that it is now uh, a felony to traffic in fentanyl. Hello? I mean, common sense, it, it should be. Uh, another thing he mentioned is that if you're out on parole for a felony and you commit another felony, that you don't have the option for parole. And that comes into play because just recently there was a young man that was out on parole and was just recently charged with two additional murders. And you should just throw him in a dark hole until he's, he's tried. And one last thing, and it's a question more or less. There was a 7-year-old that took a 12-inch butcher knife to school and admitted that he wanted to stab his teacher and some other students in the heart and it comes out because he was bullied, but they can't charge him. Well, I, I hope the young man gets some, some help, because if he doesn't, we're looking at the next Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. And, and, and it's just scary. This is common sense, people. There, there's a new drug out called, I believe it's Tran, and then the Narcan does not have any effect on it. You know, is it not a felony to traffic in, in, in Tran now? Common sense. And one final thing, I'll let you go. What's what's the uh, podcast, the name of the podcast again? It is No Stop Lights with Kennard. No Stop Lights with Kennard. All right, I'm going to Google it, and then we'll, we'll see. But you guys have a good weekend, and I look forward to it. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the comments. Um, I sent a text to my family a couple of weeks ago. And in the text, my kids are 31, 30. I'm thinking of my wife get mad because I got a year wrong. Uh, my daughter will be 20 uh, next month. Well, actually, this month. She'll be 20 years old. My kids are in their uh, early 30s, I think 31 and 30. Um, anyway, I sent a text out to my family. Um, I watched Twitter one night, or I, I went on Twitter one day, and I watched this, and I watched that, and I went to Facebook, and I went to the news, and I went to a website, another website, another website. We live in a very violent culture. It seems to me that, that we have desensitized ourselves as to how bizarre violence really is, how random violence really is. And, and my text, I, I could go back and find it exactly and quote it verbatim, but, but my text was, look, I am the leader of the family, so to speak. 
And I've not set a good example at avoiding conflict. I mean, I really have not. I mean, I, I've kind of, uh, when, when I see an issue, I, I'm one of the crazies that kind of head towards it. And, and, and I've convinced myself that's not smart. So I've set a bad example. In other words, if there is a potential conflict in, 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 the, in the home next door, the best thing to do is stay away. I mean, I, I'm sorry that we've just gotten there as a society. So you're going to be um, not such a good Samaritan. You're going to let things happen. Well, I, I just, I see too many innocent people getting injured or killed as a result of trying to intervene in the affairs of this violent culture. And the last thing I want to do is, is have one of my kids or my wife get hurt or killed um, intervening in some sort of violence. And it's everywhere. I mean, it, it, it's so, it, it's, it's unbelievable how disrespectful and violent. I mean, you guys have seen the same videos I've seen. I mean, it, Rev and I were doing a radio show uh, a couple of weeks back, and we both lost focus because we had the television on Fox News, and there was some beating. I mean, some much larger kid. Just, on a I mean, bus. It, it was a It was a gang. I mean, it was a gang of kids disturbing. beating up another, another child. And it was very disturbing. Now, now you could, uh, well, that's always happened. We just didn't have Facebook and, and iPhones. I don't know. I mean, I don't remember things like that happening. I remember scuffles on the schoolyard. I mean, I remember a kid, you know, being reprimanded for having a knife at school, but I don't remember butcher knives. I don't remember guns in backpacks. I mean, I remember a pack of cigarettes moved the moon as far as I was concerned. I mean, if a kid at Hannah Pamplico got caught with a pack of cigarettes, it was like, wow, I mean, the world's coming to an end. But, but now all of a sudden, we've got kids with butcher knives. We've got kids with uh, machetes and loaded guns. And I'm not talking about 18, 19-year-olds. I'm talking about six or seven-year-olds. And I'm not naive and I'm not a fuddy-duddy. But I began thinking about the world my kids live in. And I think when I was 30, when I was 20, it was okay to not be so alarmed by how violent culture was. But it's different today. And people will shoot. You want to say this, Rev? You ready? People will shoot your ass for nothing today. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Deion Sanders was, um, was coaching, what is it, Jackson State before he took the job at Colorado. And Deion addressed his team before the Christmas holidays. And Deion said, oh, I'm going to tell you now, when you go clubbing, they ain't fighting no more. They're shooting. I'm just telling you, as your coach, as someone who believes he has a responsibility to your well-being, when you go clubbing, under, this ain't like when I was at Florida State. They ain't fighting. They're shooting, and they're killing, and they're changing lives forever. And I think we've just, you know, I don't know why. It's kind of interesting to me for Hollywood to be as anti-gun as they are when they seem to glorify violent behavior. I mean, the gun's a part of their movie. How many movies could Hollywood make without a gun? without some sort of violence. But yet society is not going to reflect that in any way, um, shape, or form. And I'm not trying to say that I have the moral and intellectual high ground. I'm certainly not insinuating that. But I've given my family advice as the leader of the band, so to speak, that if you see some sort of violent encounter or, or some sort of encounter that could potentially lead to violence, get out of there. Don't hang around. Run. Um, I actually saw a guy. He's an MMA expert. And he teaches classes on self-defense and personal awareness and situational awareness. And this guy is like 6'2", 220 pounds, 100 black belts and 100 different martial arts. He ain't the dude you want to mess with. You know what I mean? But he said that he encourages people now to just leave, flee, 
I mean, that, that, that 80, 80% of his teachings is how to get away from someone who may be um, interested in perpetrating an, an act of violence against you or another person. Now, now, here's the quandary. What is my responsibility to my fellow man? I mean, if there are eight people, jump one guy. I mean, am I really going to sit there and watch that? Am I going to run away? Here's, the, here's, the, um, here's what disturbs me more than anything, that kids are okay filming it. I mean, there's a kid somewhere that has a moral compass that says it's okay to grab your camera out of your pocket, to turn your phone or grab your phone out of your pocket, turn it on video, and watch nine children beat the living daylights out of one child. I mean, that to me, that's, that's equally disturbing to the event itself. There's nobody there that has the moral compass of intervention. Or even running away, going to get some sort of, you know, go get a teacher or law enforcement or, or an adult. No. I mean, a kid turns their phone on and then and, and watches and downloads and shares it with others. That is a, I mean, that, that is a very violent culture. And where does it come from? Don't have any idea. I'm not blaming Hollywood. I'm not blaming Democrat policy. I'm not blaming the lack of discipline in the home. But I can tell you this, when, when, when you have the breakdown of the family, you have a desensitizing of violent behavior. You have a lack of accountability. You um you lessen the degree of responsibility and accountability in the home, in the school, in the business organization, in the civic group. It's and, and you wake up one day surprised at how society has evolved, how culture reflects the values of its leadership. It's it's all it's it's almost like some people believe that we can do anything and get away with it. You know, we can have movies that glorify violence. We can have video games that glorify violence. We can have kids going to school with no parental guidance. We can have all these things happen, but I mean, it'll figure itself out. I mean, there's nothing to see here. You know how those conservative Republicans are. They want to control. They want everybody going to church and everybody tucking their shirt in. I ain't that guy. I can assure you that I'm not some cultural warrior by any stretch of the imagination. And what I've done is very selfish in the most selfish way imaginable. I have told the people I love most in this world that if you think there's a chance that you're going to get involved in a violent situation, you get out of there right now. It ain't worth it to get caught up in the middle of it. And that's not the way I was taught, Rev. I was taught that when someone weak is being attacked by someone strong, you defend the weak. I mean, both my parents kind of um, taught me that. But all of a sudden, you got guns and knives and gangs and all these other sorts of things and I just, you know, I, I just felt it appropriate. I tell my family, I've set a bad example because they've seen me at my best or worse, trying to intervene in things that I probably had no business intervening in. And um, it's just not worth it now. I mean, it's simply not worth the chance or the risk. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. There are a lot of things I'm uncertain about in my life. I'm uncertain about how good a parent I've been. I'm uncertain about how good a spouse I've been. I'm uncertain about how good a radio show host I am. I'm uncertain about how good a business partner I am. I'm always searching. I mean, I'm, I'm introspective enough to try and self-evaluate accordingly. Um, I challenge myself. Rev challenges himself. He challenges me. I challenge him. Same thing with my family members. And, and I don't have all the answers to all the problems for sure. But but I do I do know this. All right, let me let me back up. I don't know much of anything. I do believe this. I believe that I've been a good enough parent that my three kids know that ain't right. 
I mean, there's something wrong. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is what are kids getting or not at home to go out there amongst peers and believe that's excusable, believe that's okay. I'm talking about um, seven or eight kids jump one kid. For, forget turf warfare and gang. I, I'm talking about children. I'm not talking about 19, 20, 21-year-old, you know, you sell dope on this corner, I sell dope on that corner. I mean, that's, that's big boy stuff. That, that's adulthood. I'm talking about children riding on a school bus, and, and, and one kid is jumped. And four or five kids just wail away at one child. And when they step away, another kid comes in and wails away or takes a kick at the head of that child. And somebody's filming it. I mean, another child, another 11, 12, 13-year-old is filming that. What are they getting or not getting at home? Because I I can tell you this. um, I mean, I've eaten my words a lot. And I I want to warn parents, young parents in particular, don't say what your kid won't do. Don't say what your kid will never do because you'll eat a lot of those words. But but there's something about that, that that alarms me, concerns me. I understand kids doing stupid stuff. I've done a lot of stupid stuff. But but what inside of a, of a child leads them to believe that's okay? That, that one child is laying on the ground getting pummeled by six other kids, but I'm going to get one kick in. And this other kid is standing idly by with a camera, filming it and sharing it with, with friends. What is that child getting, or more importantly, what is that child not getting in the confines of the family structure? Well, I mean, we think the answer to that is um, there, there's not much of a family structure in some of these children's lives. Let's go to the phone. Melanie in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. Ken, as a former teacher and parent, of course, I want to say what they're not getting is they're not getting it since this isn't normal. Everything in our culture is so saturated with violence. They watch violent movies. They play violent games. Oftentimes they see violence in the home. And there's no one to stop and say, look, this isn't normal. This isn't a way to settle your disputes. This is not an acceptable way to act. And after a while, if you're not told that it's not normal, it becomes normal. And until we can find a way to stop that and say, this is not the way a civilized society behaves. That's what it's going to take is stepping in and saying, this is not normal. Let's stop it. Thank you, ma'am. That's a great way to end a week's worth of radio. This is not normal. But but who tells them it's not normal? I mean, if, if violence is normalized in your life, in other words, if you watch movies and there's violence everywhere, you're playing video games, there's violence everywhere, um, you, you, you're, you're in a situation of spousal abuse or, or domestic violence, uh, you, your, your entire life is full of violence. So when you get on that school bus, it, it's very normal for you to act upon some of those compulsions or influences. I mean, I have violent compulsions and influences, but there's something inside of me that says you can't do that. I mean, you, you can't. You, there's no way you can behave um, that way. But that comes from, um, you know, a, a, a very normal child rearing. I mean, I was and knowing right from. I mean, sure. I mean, so somebody instilled in me at a very early age: this is right and it's not. And, and when you do something that's not right. There's a consequence, a major consequence that you pay. Let's go to the phone. David in Hartsville. Good morning. How you doing, sir? Hey, David. Uh, Ken, it's good to talk to you guys. Uh, they just need a good old country ass whooping like you used to get. Well, I've got a bunch of those life. after much less than what I've seen on some of the videos. <laughs> Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Another call? Yep. Let's go there. Carol Marion. Hi, you're on. 
Hello? Hi, Carol. You're on. Hey, okay, sorry. Um, so real quick, it's not what kids have at home. It's what they don't have at home, and they don't have discipline. Parents are not quick enough to discipline their kids anymore, and it's about, you know, oh, not my kid. My kid didn't do that. Thank you. Appreciate that. A lot of women call in when you begin talking about um, these sorts of issues, and I can't imagine teaching an eighth-grade class where, I mean, because young boys are strong and big and tough enough there to really hurt someone, um, and they have no, I mean, it's just, and, and it's not black or white. I mean, I've seen it across the board. I mean, this is not a racial issue. It is a, I mean, to me, it's a familiar issue, and um, and who's teaching kids the right way to live and conduct themselves, and, and what kids are not getting taught the right way to live and conduct themselves. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.